This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, January the 26th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. We're looking forward to speak with you on this Come On With It edition of Open Line. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26. Well, what a night for the Growlers on the road down in Norfolk where they had a hard time with the Admirals last week, but they popped off uh, five power play goals in five attempts to get a 7-4 victory. Jackson Berezowski matched the franchise record with a five-point night, two goals and three assists. So, good game for the Growlers on the road. No no kidding. The, uh, the Newfoundland Rogues come up a little bit short at Mary Brown Center last night versus the Kitchener-Waterloo Titans. It was 121-110. They go back at it Saturday night downtown St. John's. And check in on the Briar and the Scotties play Playdowns happening at the Remax Center. Busy spot this week. So tight at the top on the men's side. Team Smith and Team McNeil Lambswood are both 5-1, and one, followed close behind by Team Young at 4-1, and one, and then the rest of the field. And on the women's side, uh, Team Stacey Curtis. There are two wins, zero losses early on in the Scotties' playdown. I mentioned there the other day that there was a historic night for the Boston College Eagles and Abby Newhook when they played in the old Boston Garden, the TD Garden, uh, in the Bean Pot against Harvard in a 2-2 tie. Now on the professional women's side, they've had some pretty good attendance numbers, and maybe for some, surprisingly so. Big opportunity for Maggie Connors and Toronto when they play Montreal on February 16th. They're going to be playing at the Scotiabank Center, the home of the Raptors and the Toronto Maple Leafs. So opportunity to set an attendance record, of course, 19,000 seats in the Scotiabank Center. Ottawa attracted 8,318 fans for its January 2nd opener at TD Place. Minnesota had 13,316 people go through their turnstiles January the 6th at the XL Center. And maybe, just maybe, that record will be obliterated on the 16th when Toronto takes on Montreal what they're calling the Battle on Bay Street. Okay. And good to see Alex and Hook back on the ice. So he suffered that high ankle sprain back in November. They're targeting February the 10th for him to be back in game action. But it's good to see him out there twirling around and hopefully there is no interruption to his continued rehab. Historic day when we talk about uh, Olympic medals. It was 100 years ago today the first ever Olympic gold medal was won in a winter sport. American speed skater Charles Jutra won the 500 meter speed skating event 44 seconds at the Chamonix Games in France. He grew up around Lake Placid and he recounts his uh, duel with Charles Gorman, a Canadian. So unlike today where you have to go through various rounds to be in the medal round, then they just had uh, pairs take, uh, take off against each other and whoever had the lowest time throughout the entire competition simply won the gold medal. So, let's see here. This is a quote coming from Mr. Jutra talking about his battle with Gorman. I was always great on the starts, but Gorman got the jump on me. He was going like a cyclone. I was in the outside lane, and I knew we had to change lanes somewhere down the line. I hadn't watched any heats before ours, so I couldn't figure out how it happened, but somehow it did, and after we changed, I was ahead. I have no idea how it happened. We were screaming along, and then I got a second wind. I didn't dare look behind to see where Gorman was. I beat him by a second and a half. He told me he was completely exhausted. I had emptied him out. And curiously, on 
found his way over to compete in the games, they went by ship, of course. And he went on to say, I was so sick crossing the ocean that I kept praying that the ship would sink. I wasn't even nervous the day of the race. Why would I be? I knew I couldn't win. And that was a quote given to Sports Illustrated. Okay, let's keep it rolling. Oh, what a coup for the Newfoundland Labrador Folk Fest. Yesterday, after the much and highly anticipated announcement, who would be their headliner? Amy Lou Harris. I mean, that is a pretty big deal. They've had some big names headlining in the past. You know, Bruce Coburn was there one year. And then you talk about the likes of Fred Penner, who's internationally renowned and famous. But Amy Lou Harris, boy, oh boy. So the comments coming from uh, Mary Beth Waldrum, who's the Folk Society's artistic director. She's an icon. She's a legend. Prolific singer-songwriter, won several Grammys, a bunch of nominations. In fact, Emmy Lou Harris has 13 Grammys. She sold an estimated 15 mil- million records worldwide. 2008, she was inducted to the Country Music Hall of Fame. Rolling Stone magazine put her on its 2022 list as the t- uh, one of the 200 greatest singers of all time. Emmy Lou Harris, unbelievable. What a signing that is. Those tickets will be... Uh, gone in a flash. So when are they going on sale? I should give you that information in case you're interested in getting involved. All right, so the 48th annual film uh, annual festival will take place July 12th to the 14th. Early bird tickets go on sale February 15th, and day passes go on sale April the 10th. Amy Lou Harris, I hope to get to see that one. All right, so yesterday we actually had a call from Mary wondering about the traffic congestion on the outering row. She wanted to go to the bank. And some two hours of log jam, and apparently there's been an arrest made in this particular collision. So a, a pickup truck rear-ended a sedan, sent the sedan across the line, uh, impacted a westbound SUV. The drivers of the sedan and the SUV were sent to hospital, non-life-threatening injuries. We hope they're okay. But they've laid charges against the pickup driver, pickup truck driver, 33-year-old from Conception Bay South, charged with impaired driving, impaired b- driving causing bodily harm, license suspended. They also ticketed a bunch of what they call rubberneckers, people with their phones out, taking pictures and videos of the accident scene. So that's a no-no. And so some charges have been laid on that front. Notably, the impaired charge laid at a collision that hap- happened at 8.30 in the morning. And so a couple of hours later, they cleared it up. Someone's been charged. And yesterday we had a call from a father of a young girl who has acknowledged that she needs some help with her mental health and her drug addiction. And so they were told that there's space at the detox center. Then they called the detox center to be told, no, there's a wait time. We have no beds available. Since that call, I'll guesstimate that 20 different families have sent me emails with the exact same tale. Unfortunately for some of those 20, when the wait time was what it was, and then, of course, the delay between detox and getting into a treatment facility, their loved one has relapsed. So there's huge questions looming about what the province has done to acknowledge, to understand, and to accommodate the need for people who want help to get help. You know, there's lots of conversations about people being forced to get help, which has proven to never work. But when we have, regardless if you're young, middle-aged, old, and you think, well, today's the day where I understand my issues, I'm getting some help, and then you can't get it, of course the likelihood and the risk to relapse into that death spiral of addiction is very, very real. So I appreciate people sharing their stories. I know it takes a lot of guts or courage or gumption or whatever the right word is, but those stories, you know, just after one call, and of course we've had many calls like that over the years, but that one call yesterday spurred on at least 20 emails from 20 families telling the same story obviously not good uh quick programming note 
And I appreciate everyone sending in their questions for Minister Osborne and the gentleman at the top of Newfoundland Labrador Health Services, David Diamond. We had them scheduled to come on here this morning together. We were going to dig into an awful lot of stuff regarding operational daycare. We were going to start the conversation with procurement. Unfortunately, Mr. Diamond has a conflict with the time that we had scheduled. That particular interview has been pushed to Tuesday. So we're not going to just forget about this there's way too much on the line so i'm disappointed and i don't know exactly what's going on but unfortunately we've had to push it to tuesday and let's see if we can hold both to that agreement to appear together here on tuesday but keep the questions coming if i'll try to put them all in the file and accommodate the questions as best i can okay so how about another summit how about another accord how about another report which is exactly what the province is now doing regarding the K-12 system and the need to modernize education. Okay, so they're calling it the Education Accord. The advisory team chairs are Karen Goodnow and Ann Burke. They both teach in the education faculty. They're being tapped to create a roadmap to modernize the K-12 system, and it's a pretty tight timeline. It has to be done by the end of the year. Very well. Ms. Goodenough says it's a, you know, take all the past reports and documents on education, act on them, while also working with the partners and stakeholders to improve both economic and social goals. You know, um, all right. So back in 2017, then Premier Ball struck an education summit. We had the 2019 report from the child and youth advocate Jackie Lake Kavanaugh about chronic absenteeism. We've heard the stories from the NLTA and their pushback and their reaction, I'll, I'll call it, is clear. One of the key sentences that jumps off the page to me is they say, we all know that the working conditions for teachers are the learning conditions for students. The issues are out there. We've been discussing them. We have different stakeholders, so to speak, that have joined us on the program from the NLTA and many others and family members, moms and dads, caregivers. We see and hear the issues all the time. So, you know, the government will applaud themselves for taking this initiative. Hopefully, for once and for all, that these reports will actually see the light of day and actions will be implemented. But whether it be the review of the inclusive model, how it's working or how it's not working, whether it be the issue regarding violence in the schools, cell phones, the ratio of guidance counselors to students, and yes, teacher shortages, substitute teacher shortages, the working conditions in general, you know, we, don't we already have a lot of this information right at the tip of our fingers, tip of our tongue, front of mind? But here we go again with another accord and or summit. The needs are immediate. I mean, just look at the one that you've heard me talk about this many times, and we have to talk about it and we have to stick with it because it's a huge issue. You wonder what's been done since 2019 when the Child and Youth Advocate pointed out the patently obvious problem regarding chronic absenteeism. It said that, and this is back in the 2019 numbers, and I don't imagine it's improved, about 10% or 6,600 of the province's children miss at least a month or more of school on average. Significant problem. And it's not just pointing fingers at administrators and individual schools. It's about the department. It's about multiple departments. Unless we know why children are not in school we're not going to be able to do anything about it it would be curious to find out whether any action any interaction between various government departments to try to figure this out and to do much better than we currently do because right now we do quite poorly 
Here's the stat that is absolutely key. We talk about long-term prosperity in the province. We talk about the numbers of people reliant on social programs. We talk about health care system. We talk about issues regarding criminal justice. You would imagine there's a very limited opportunity if you don't have a relatively or a successful run through K-12, and maybe, just maybe, some post-secondary, you're going to have a hard time with this really highly competitive global workplace. Here's the number. Global research shows that 75% of students who are chronically absent in grade 6 will not go on to finish high school. I wonder have we ever even set up a way to understand where some of these children who do not graduate from high school, maybe because of their chronic absenteeism, what becomes of them? Unless we know that, it won't shine the brightest light required to understand that this is a massive concern. And then it's not that long ago, we saw the most recent report come from the folks called PISA, and they're talking about math and science scores. So that's the Program for International Student Assessment. We've seen a trend since 2003 where the scores are steadily declining. In this province, woeful numbers. Worst issue in the country since 2018. Math scores have dropped in this province by 29 points. 29. We're at a year and a half or two years behind in mathematics learning regarding children in the K-12 system. It is simply unsustainable. So here comes another accord, whether this is going to be the one that actually sees meaningful change or transformation. I guess we'll all find out at the same time, but here we go. Okay. Tony Wakem, leader of the PC, is leader of the PC party is continuing the conversation regarding what was not done to understand who the CEO and the operator at Red Sea Riding, who was granted the first rideshare license in this province, four days after it was granted, it was suspended. Why? Because the CEO was facing very serious charges. Sexual assault, sexual interference, and of course, some of these are against minors. So the department says that they followed the process, that the application met all the department's requirements when it was submitted. Okay, if and when that's true, very much like things with regarding procurement, it's one thing to follow the guidelines, it qu- it's quite another to do things right. If that's the process, then the process is flawed, and we have to change the process before we evaluate any other applications for things like involvement with the general public. So the regulations state that drivers must submit criminal record checks to their employers, employers must provide proof to the province that all the drivers have been checked, there's nothing to state that the company's owner or CEO has to submit similar docu- documentation about themselves. Let's change that. Why don't we just change that to be a bit more comprehensive in our vetting or evaluation of who's doing business with the government? Anyway, so Mr. Waken wants a few more answers on that. And Minister Studley, I know she was on the show while I was away there a couple of weeks ago, but there's still more to learn about this issue and many others that fall under digital government and service NL. So if that's the process, let's fix the process. Okay, a couple of quickies before we get to you. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? I can't see, Dave. Anyway, let's keep going. So lots to talk about hydrogen in this province and around the world. And, of course, we can talk about the looming deadline for the province to give the green light to one or more of the onshore hydrogen to uh, wind to hydrogen and ammonia for export for power. We still don't have a firm understanding about their interaction with the grid. But an interesting story that's coming, unfolding here in this country. So there's a fellow named uh, Denny Briere. He's taken his team. He was part of the discovering the fir- world's first deposit of natural, hi- natural hydrogen in Africa. Now they're taking their work to Ontario. This is a big deal. 
there may indeed, and I heard this being discussed on Quirks and Quarks there not that long ago, there might indeed be copious amounts of hydrogen that we can find naturally in the Earth, which of course does away with any of the opportunities, or maybe not replace in full, but certainly be a significant complement to the use of hydrogen as one of the so-called transition fuels as many countries try to decarbonize their grid. So they found that. They were drilling for water. And they actually didn't even know they were sitting on a hydrogen find until someone lit up a cigarette and the well burst in the flames. It took a month to put the fire out. So they're going back to see how much they can find of this natural hydrogen. They call it white hydrogen. When you produce hydrogen using natural gas, they call it gray. When you use renewables such as wind, they call it green although it's much more expensive to create that green hydrogen. So we'll see with Mr. Briere. I'd like to speak with that guy. He's a petrophysicist. But I think there's always been a lot of ballyhoo about hydrogen. Whether or not it's going to be utilized the way the world is talking about at this moment in time remains to be seen. And for those of you interested in the onshore projects that are currently in play, some five of them, four of them put forward by the provincial government, and of course Pattern Energy at the Port of Argentia, who they'll be utilizing their own land, consequently not required that level of oversight quite yet by the provincial government. And we're also wondering, you know, when the regulations will be finalized for the potential for offshore wind. Apparently there's people kicking the tires and approaching the province, uh, I guess in strong numbers, to look at the potential for that particular offshore power. Anyway, let's keep going very quickly before we get to your calls. So we have talked about this in the last couple of days. Some people were dismayed, some were quite pleased, when Ken McDonald, the Liberal MP for Avalon, was calling for a leadership review. So the Federal Liberal Caucus is on retreat right now. The Prime Minister made reference to distractions, didn't mention Mr. Mr. McDonald by name. But now he's soft-pedaling it or walking it back in full. Here's a quote coming from a statement that he released yesterday morning. The intent of my recent public comments was to not personally call for leadership review, and I'm not calling for one now. But he did. Right? So I suppose the pressure coming from the Liberal House leader, Mr. McKinnon, he says he's happy to see Mr. McDonald clarify his remarks. He didn't clarify them, he changed them. And then he went on to talk about the party whip, that's Ruby Sahota, uh, had a conversation with Mr. McDonald. But of course, she says that is private. We don't know what was said. But yes, we do. He was pretty much told, get in line. And so he backpedaled or soft-pedaled his comments. If you want to take that on, or anything under the sun, we can do it here this morning. We are on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. And yes, look, since I gave the programming update, and it's completely out of my control, completely out of David Williams' control, we were told that Mr. Diamond has a conflict with his schedule and Minister Osborne's commitment to come on the show this morning. So we have rescheduled for Tuesday. I don't have a whole lot to say about it beyond that because I don't know exactly what's going on, but we will not drop it. There's far too much to consider, many questions that we need to pose on my behalf, on your behalf. So I get it. There will be frustrated people out there today, but let's see what we can get out of them on Tuesday. And we can talk about whatever's on your mind right after this break. Kim wants to start, started off talking about some of the tape that we've been playing about Jimmy Kimmel. What about him? Well, we'll find out. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Kim. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you. How about you? Good. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. Patty, um, I was wondering, why do you think Aaron Rodgers would say that Jimmy Kimmel is really hoping 
that the Jeffrey Epstein client list doesn't come out? Well, many of the names on the list have been made public, and I think because Mr. Kimmel had taken repeated swats at Aaron Rodgers given his stance on the COVID vaccine, that they already had a built-in rivalry or argument or fight ongoing. So when the news broke that the Epstein list will be released, of course, Rodgers took that opportunity on a program called The Pat McAfee Show on ESPN to say what he said about Kimmel and the Epstein list. And of course, Kimmel's name was not on it. There's been some back and forth. McAfee's not having Rodgers on any longer. He used to have him on every Tuesday. So I think it's simply because Kimmel was taking swings at Rodgers about the COVID vaccine. Yeah, because he said he wouldn't make such a serious comment without proof, and he's refusing to apologize. Yeah, he's a a strange bird to begin with, Aaron Rodgers. Uh, So if he had proof, he would have released it by now, but of course he doesn't have any. He just shut his mouth off, I think. Could it have to do with the video Jimmy Kimmel made with Tom Hanks and Ron Howard? Have you seen it? I'm not familiar with it. I'm not sure what you're referring to. Um, the video is called Toddlers and Tiaras with Tom Hanks, okay. and it can be found on YouTube. The video features Tom Hanks and his daughter Sophie. She's six at the time, and he's coaching her to enter the Miss Ultimate Sexy Baby Nevada pageant. Okay. And in, in the video, he's teaching her how to walk sexy and denies her a cookie because of a swimsuit competition. When she arrives at the pageant, she dances to the song by the band Poison called Talk Dirty to Me. She dances to the lyrics, I know you like it too, the way that I want you. And she ends her routine with shouting, Talk Dirty to Me. So are you suggesting that these gentlemen are pedophiles or something? Well... I'm just saying what I've seen, and Jimmy Kimmel is sitting in the audience with a child contestant next to him, his hands in prayer position as they are about to announce the winner of the Ultimate Sexy Baby pageant. Ron Howard and his child Rhonda win the contest. How is this not disturbing? Well, I don't, I've never seen it, so I don't really know what to say to it. But I do know that that entire thing that the Americans do with the toddlers and tiaras and the little children in these beauty pageants is kind of ridiculous in the first place, I will say, in general terms. But I don't know what to say about, uh, like, I don't know if any of these gentlemen have done anything untoward to a child ever in their lives. I know if the people had proof and there was any investigations that I assume, I would hope, that regardless of your celebrity status, if you're a lefty or a righty or an independent, if you've done anything like that to a child, I hope you're taking the task and punished to the fullest extent of the law. So that's really all I have to say about that because I don't know the video, don't really know the issues. I know that Kimmel and Rogers have gone back and forth at each other about things like vaccines and Epstein and all that stuff. I don't know if there's anything to it or not. Not, to be honest. Yes, well, we both can agree that sexualizing a child is not funny. Yeah, no, and those pageants take place all the time. There was actually a TV show on uh, network television looking at those pageants. I mean, it's pretty weird stuff, and I don't understand how parents want to have their child engaged in that type of competition at that tender age, period, regardless mm-hmm. of who the parent is. Me either. And the reason I called, too, um, which prompted me to call today, was that yesterday on NTV's first edition with Tony Marie Wiseman, she covered two abuse stories and a conversation with Janine, Dr. Janine Hubbard, about appropriate content and disturbing content for children. Then they promote Jimmy Kimmel. And in that skit, he's surrounded by five- and six-year-olds. I think the good people of Dildo 
should see this video and decide if they want to continue to have Jimmy Kimmel as their honorary mayor. Okay, I'll, I'll leave that up to them. Anything else, Kim? Um, well, Patty, I think there's something to see here, and it's concerning and disturbing. And I think Aaron Rodgers is trying to let people know who Jimmy Kimmel is and what he's up to. I don't know if Aaron Rodgers knows the first thing about Jimmy Kimmel. I don't know. Well, it's serious accusations, and he said he thinks, he said himself that Jimmy Jimmy Kimmel thinks he's stupid, but he would not, without concrete evidence, make such an accusation. And if he was on a flight to Epstein Island, that's where people paid to rape minors. Yes, I know. And everyone who did anything on Epstein Island or anywhere else on the face of the earth to a child sexually should be punished. I don't care who they are. And I don't care if they're the biggest celebrities in the world. I don't care if they're current or former presidents. I don't care if they're Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservatives, NDPers, communists, socialists. I don't care. If they've done anything like that, I would be entirely in support of maximum punishment for anyone who's done anything of the like. That's my yes. final thought on that particular issue, and I, pre- I appreciate the call. Yes, and, and just one more thing, Patty. Quickly. I think that Jimmy Kimmel is mocking the town of Dildo because of the modern meaning that is attached to the word dildo. That's part of it. Yes, and I, I don't think that's right. I think the people of Dildo and the province of Newfoundland deserve better. I think we're smarter than that, and we're we're good people. Well, people in this province also have fun with that name. Of course, they do. But when there are serious accusations about somebody about hurting a child, something should be looked into and acted upon. I'll leave that up to the authorities. Thanks for the call, Kim. You're welcome, Patty. God bless you. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. And, you know, you talk about those uh, young beauty pageants. And, of course, one of the most notable, and I can't remember one of the young girls who was pretty famous about her participation in those pageants. There was a TV show about her, a reality show, but of course JonBenet Ramsey. And apparently there's information coming out about her murder, which took place, I think, hmm, 1996, so quite a long time ago. Uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you, sir? Okay, I suppose. How about you? Not bad at all. I was actually reading a... Um, something as your preamble was on and was the talks of it, I guess has already been decided they're going to go ahead now with an educational accord which um, makes me first of all ask the question why do we need to do such things again uh, back in the 80s and 90s we had a system I guess which was changed drastically when they had the original uh, way that we ran our schools, which was denominational, I guess, was reviewed. They had a royal commission that was put together, looked at all aspects of education, and came up with a plan for how to best, I guess, replace denominational systems with a non-denominational system. And I guess there's merit to doing that, and why why they done it, I'm not quite sure, but... The overall mandate and idea 
behind it, of course, was change into the required, and, and, and they were looking to effect savings and efficiencies and whatever. Well, it never took very long. After we started eliminating all of the different regional school boards that existed before they were gone, and we were down to just a couple, and then that eventually just came down to the one being the NLESD. Over that time, regions lost any real direct daily contact with their school system. It was not centralized. It was moved right across the other side, and I don't mind telling you I was involved with it all the way through and as a service provider for busing, and it started falling apart not long after that actually happened. When they made the revision, efficiency never followed it. They never saved any money. I mean, the actual numbers of people working for the school district now, even though there's only one, have over doubled from what they were back in the 80s and 90s when there were a lot more kids in the system. These accords, if you're going to be like the, the health accord, usually involve a direct look at local situations by people from outside of it. I know for this area, this region here in particular, in, in, in where I'm to here in Stephenville, uh, the hospital is going to be downgraded to a level one community hospital, which I'm not exactly in favor of either. And this is the direct results of commissions. Well, or, you know, uh, in this case, not commissions, uh, accord uh, groups. It doesn't involve the ability to what I would say improved the system at all. I don't think things are better as far as local representation in, in, in terms of education right now. And then that goes right down to, I'll go back to school busing again, like the amount of contact that they have with operators and whatnot outside of the eastern region and the way that they operate busing. I mean, you very seldom hear tell or see the transportation manager for anything. Problems take forever to be dealt with. And unless there's an end goal for this commission for education, um, seeing how the denominational question is not on the table, I would assume that this is to somewhat find a way to revamp and reform the way that we deliver education in our province today. Yeah, but why would the denominational issue be on the table? I don't think it is now. I doubt it. No. There's no going back. I can't imagine it would be. That's, no. that's been dealt with. That's gone. But I, since that's not on the table, what I'm saying is what is on the table. I imagine they're looking at this in terms of enrollment, uh, regional uh, you know, uh, location of schools, where they're going to be, uh, the number of people, I guess, that will be working in it. I, I'm sure that they've got a number of questions that they've got to I think it's more about the delivery. I, d- I doubt the big focus would be on where schools are because that's a moving target based on student enrollment, right? I mean, we've got, yes. I don't know, how many schools in the province with less than 20 students at this moment in time. So I don't know how much focus can be as- as- associated with that or afforded to that issue. This would be about, I would imagine, curriculum delivery, cur- cur- curriculum uh, creation, uh, 
the numbers of students versus the number of teachers, the number of guidance counselors versus yep. the number of students. I would imagine it's some of those bare basics. I would imagine there's a careful evaluation coming of the inclusive model of education, which is simply not working. It's just not. Conceptually no. very sound and strong. Uh, in reality, on the ground, not working. No. Back in the days when we went to school, I mean, first of all, you were... Uh, you know, I guess basically you had a lot more, you had to study harder and do things. I mean, like final exams and public exams were never a question. You had to do them. You had to achieve all year long and pass in grades or you failed. Seems like a lot of that has been tossed by the wayside. But then at the same time, I would argue so has the quality of our education that we're delivering in this province. Well, the scores are dropping, and they're dropping across the country, and especially poor in this province. And the trend is real, and the trend is undeniable. You know, we can look at 2018 to today, which is one of the key focuses by PISA, but if you look at the trend in scores since 2003, so we're talking about two decades plus, we're heading in the wrong direction. Is that a result of how we moved away from standardized testing? I don't know. I mean, I'm not an educator, but there's something to the fact that not everyone can regurgitate what they learned on exam day. I get it. If we put too much percentage of your overall mark onto one exam, maybe just maybe we're not doing the right thing or the most or the most appropriate or the best way to evaluate where a student is. But moving away from it in full and taking away any pressures associated with deadlines and uh, work that you have to submit to your teacher, I think we're just we're kind of kid gloving issues where in fact you don't have to be walking the roads getting punched in the arm. You don't have to be doling out the strap of corporate punishment. You don't have to be overall mean to children, but there also has to be some real structure. There also has to be some uh, accountability and consequence, and that doesn't mean we're going to throw someone in the gulag for failing their math test, but we just maybe need to be a little bit more focused on structure and outcomes than we currently are. Now, again, I'll leave it to educators to talk about their lived work experience, about where the system is broken, where the gaps exist. I think we've had a lot of these conversations on this program for many, many years, but this accord really just feels a little bit like a a can kick to me. It just really, truly does. Uh, I'll give you the final thoughts, Dave, before I have to go. Well, I got to agree with everything that you just said and how you so eloquently put it. It's kind of uh, no doubt. Um, I'm not saying that there isn't some form of revision or improvement needed in the educational system, but uh, it's got to involve people from within the system that are aware of the problems and I guess how to fix them with, you know, not just fire another bunch of bodies at it and another bunch of pay sal- uh, salaries to, to have to pay or whatever, but some true, I guess, uh, based on facts and, and grassroots improvements, maybe a comparison to some other area where things are working better, but obviously something does need to be done, but I'm not 100% sure if you can rely upon the suggestions of, of these accords in total leader because when I when I look at the health accord and I look at some of the decisions that are going to be made for us based upon you know an outside view because there was not many people involved I I, I attended every one of the Zoom uh, conferences and the town halls that they had for the health accord I don't think I heard tell of a, of anybody from our region actually online at any of them 
so the input's got to come from the region in the area as well, and I guess there's going to be some hard decisions made as to where schools are located or if they're going to be in local communities or kids are going to be bused. I think those things can be worked out fairly easily, but when it comes down to the curriculum, the way that we're having our kids, you know, missing school as much as they do and blah, 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 and no testing, I just fear the end result of that one. Appreciate the time, Dave. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the educational cord and some healthcare vacancy numbers that have been revealed in the recent past. Then we're going to speak with a gentleman named David Magby. He's the president of the Basketball League. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number six. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John's Centre. He's the leader of the party. That's Jim Din. Jim, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. How about you? Not too bad. Thank you for having me on. I just want to begin my comments today. I want to talk about two things, education and the uh, and the uh, vacancies in the health care uh, system. But I just want to start by reading a, uh, a few recommendations and conclusions from a 2004 report uh, by Dr. Dave Divin. It entitled, It's About Time Report on the Impact of Workload on Teachers and Students. And it talks about the uh, need for a minimum of 180 minutes of preparation time per week. It talks, it concludes that given the turbulent nature of schools today, that was 2004, where there are tremendous demands placed on teachers, mandatory supervision is not is not no longer reasonable. In fact, it's extre- an extremely uh, poor use of professional time. And based on research evidence that class size reductions, less than 20 students, are effective in both reducing teachers' workload and increasing student achievement, particularly in the primary levels, this is a sensible strategy for improving the education system for both teachers and students. Class composition is another factor that needs to be taken into consideration when students are being assigned to classes. Any, if any of this sounds familiar it should because this i i guess what i'm looking at we have yet another announcement on now uh, a uh, <laughs> an education accord and to reimagine education and 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 yet i can't help but think you know that there's this is another delay or avoidance tactic from uh, from uh, from addressing the issues that were identified way back in 2004 and have been identified since we have a, a, a we're still waiting for the recommendations of the teacher allocation uh, of the teacher allocation review committee to be implemented. We couldn't speak to it in the house beforehand when it was in place because the committee was doing its work. We can't couldn't speak to it after. Well, that's part of a collective bargaining. And now we what we have instead of addressing the, uh, these issues that have been raised since 2004, we're going to have another task force or another committee to write another report to uh, to address the issues. And the other part of it, I guess, what struck me is that obviously the minister did not think that actually sit down and talk to the organi- to the uh, to the association that represents the teachers of this province and have that conversation with them before they put this announcement out. That is unacceptable, and I I, I I think it's a recipe for disaster. So I, I listened to the announcement yesterday about the need to reimagine the education system to ensure students and learners receive educational service they need to create better outcomes, uh, support the provincial government's uh, goal of becoming one of Canada's healthiest provinces. And I kept asking myself, how many more reviews, reports, committees do we need before they actually t- uh, take steps to address the issues that, again, 
have been identified in multiple reports going back when, whether it's uh, whether it's the uh, the Dwight uh, the Premier's Task Force on improving improving educational outcomes, the PERT report, or the one that uh, that was done by Bruce Shepherd and Do- uh, Dr. Bruce Shepherd and Do- uh, Dr. Kirk Anderson on the uh, Better Together. We had a think tank announced recently. So I guess my frustration comes down to. I think we have a pretty good idea. They've been identified in multiple reports as to what needs to be done. Let's start about, if nothing else, before we start uh, crank, uh, uh, cranking out another report, uh, another committee with another report, can we not address, uh, at least start to address the issues that have been identified already? You would talk think so. To the associ- now, I would talk to, this, talk to the people, and I, I can tell you, in my career, I could see that the, like, the change, like when, once uh, you brought uh, the whole resourcing of inclusive education to make it work, the fact that we've got uh, a, a children who uh, could be co- uh, newcomer uh, children who, who, who need supports, uh, it, not only in language, but also any educational deficits, deficits that they may have. We're talking about chil- uh, children uh, coming from families where they, they may not have the supports at home that they need. So there, there are plenty of, there are plenty of things you can do if you want to improve uh, edu- uh, educational outcomes. Address, address to me the teacher allocation. Make allocation based on needs. Address poverty and mental health, uh, and, and we, and we can, and you can, you'll start to see the difference. If anything else, you know, I was, while I was waiting here for this call, I was thinking, you know, since I was elected, I've dealt with four education ministers. Four. That's in a little over four and a, about four and a half years. There, there's a problem there of continuity when you're just switching out minister after minister, and, and you don't get. Anyway, I, I, I think that that's that's half the problem. Each new minister, I don't know if they feel the need. They've got to put a uh, their own stamp on, do their own report, or if it's uh, just delaying it. But I find, as a former teacher, I find it extremely frustrating. Well, uh, to to, uh, to hear this announcement again. Truly. Well, you know, so far as a minister putting their stamp as part of some sort of legacy or what have you, I would suggest that the vast majority of people in the province will never remember who the minister was that finally made a meaningful change in education or virtually anything else. I mean, you can you can absolutely recall, you know, who some finance ministers were or fisheries ministers were when really significant things happened. But incremental change inside of education is going to be hard to, you know, hang your hat on that for the long term so-called legacy piece. And I don't think people really care. We just need things to work properly if they just paid attention. And I think it's 15 or 16 months since the recommendations came forward from the Teacher Allocation Review Committee. If that and the associated class size and composition, if only those things were adhered to based on the recommendations, the system would change meaningfully in a positive way right away. So then you can pick away at some of the other issues, whether it be inside of chronic absenteeism and violence and poverty and Mm -hmm. mental health. But if you get it right in the classroom to begin with, some of those issues get addressed organically. So it's time to move on some of these things. And again, I don't care who gets credit for one thing or another, which party, which politician, which minister. It's in our collective best interest, regardless of your ideology or what party you support, to get it right in education. I'm almost tired of saying this, but when it comes time to be polled about issues of concern to Canadians or people in this province, the economy and and jobs and health care and taxes and the environment and the justice system and down the line and somewhere down the line is education. And if education was number one, we'd do a lot better job on the economy and healthcare and taxes and the environment and criminal justice and everything else in this world. So we just got to flip our mind on how we think about education. 
So here's here's a th- simple thing, and I agree with what you're saying here. The more students you put into a class, the less time that teacher has to address individual needs, or if they're if they're if a student is uh, having trouble addressing a conflict a, a, a concept. If you put into that class and you've got a class with multiple uh, a, a diagnosis, say exceptionalities uh, that are struggling, then you've you've increased that uh, that work, that that I get or increased or d- diminish the amount of time a teacher has to spend with students. I've been in classes, and I'm thinking primary grades especially here, where they've had small class sizes, ten, and I, I I've been in the cl- in class visit classrooms where they've had a larger there's a, a larger number. There's a huge difference in the ability of teachers to address uh, behavioral concerns, um uh academic needs and so on and so forth. I I mean it's this is not rocket science. This is uh, straightforward. There's a, you know you have the uh, uh I, I guess childcare centers that have a much lower ratio than what's in the public school system. So I think Patty you're right. Move on this. Address the other issues at the at the home, that, so that all families have uh, and children have that, a, a level playing field as possible. But I think right out the bat, it's been identified for decades since 2004, 20 years ago. Uh, you know, what's the hold up here? It, it's it, it's like uh, it, I don't know how many times that message has to be put forward before sure. the government finally says that's basic. That, it's not. It may not be exciting. But that, to me, is basic stuff and will will go far to address the issues, especially as they become more complex. You know, I've, I wish that politics wasn't excitement, exciting. I wish politics wasn't made exciting on purpose by politicians because yeah. the boring work, the grunt work, the behind-the-scenes grueling work is what makes things work. It's not the sound bites and the, the glitzy bull... Oh, I almost cursed then. The glitzy nonsense <laughs> they get on with on the floor of whether it be parliament and or the legislatures across the country. It's not about sound bites. It's about doing the hard work. So let's take the excitement out of politics. Let's make it as boring as possible. And hopefully politicians can recognize that. You know, the boring people that get things done, they're the people I admire. The folks who, you know, come up with one-liners with their PR teams, they kind of bore me, to be honest with you. So I want to be bored in a good fashion. I don't want to be eye-rolled. Jim, I got to get to the break, but I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. I mean, aren't we all collectively sick of having to roll our eyes at this stuff all the time? Right? Let's get the boring work done. Let's make meaningful change. And yes, you can take some political credit as you campaign, but it's just nonstop. Let's take a break. Don't go anywhere. David Magley's right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's uh, go to line number one. Say good morning to the president of the Basketball League. That's David Magley. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on the show. So talk about growing up and playing ball in some of the hotbeds of the sports in the United States, of the sport in the United States. Played your high school ball at LaSalle, which is in South Bend, Indiana. Played your college ball at Kansas as a Jayhawk. Second round pick, 28th overall by the Cleveland Cavaliers in 1982. So you've been in some of these real uh, hot spots for basketball in the United States. Incredible. Yeah, I was I was fortunate. Um, Indiana, the, the, the 15 largest high school gyms in the world, 14 are in Indiana. Uh, Dr. Naismith famously said that basketball might have been born in Massachusetts, but it was raised in Indiana because that's all we have to do. We're we're a, we're a small markets, and, and it's just they're not even big enough schools a lot to have a lot of good football teams. So instead, basketball grew up there, and it just became a big thing. I was fortunate to play at Kansas and, and, and have a cup of coffee in the NBA and, you know, play at some great venues around the world. But more than that is I, I really enjoy what we're doing today, which is which is building 
uh, communities through basketball, building, watching this car. I was at the game last night, and I had several fans come up and said, man, you should have seen opening night. It was This place was packed. It was a great crowd, and, and they had a lot of fun. And, and, and that's what you see. If we do it well, what, what what can happen? I think I think we're about to really see that happen here. Well, you got a good franchise here. You know, some pretty good horsepower driving. Tony Kenny and Coach Williams. So that this looks like a very strong franchise for your league, David. I think there's a little bit of confusion about what league anybody plays in these days. So you know, the Rogues started their the basketball super league against the Jackals there on the 19th. Then there's the basketball league. What's the amalgamation? What's the structure actually look like? So, so, so that, that, that's that's a great question, Patty. We, the, the the basketball league TBL and the basketball super league BSO are both owned by us. So, our our, our family. My, my wife is the CEO of both leagues. I'm the president of both leagues. The logic for having different leagues is kind of like a European level pro sports, like you would in soccer or in or in basketball over there, where they'll have pro A and pro B. It's often the size of the venue, which Mary Brown Center is big enough. It's the number of games, which Tony plays the most games of any of our teams. Uh, and and it, it's the level of talent, the way we pay them. So for us, we wanted to have a, a separate league. That's where the Super League comes in. It, they happen to be all Canadian this year, where there's six Canadian BSL teams and there's, 30, uh, there's, there's 38 TBL teams. Next year, we think there'll be probably 12 BSL and, and even more TBL, and eventually there'll be 24 BSL and 64 TBL, and they'll be in both countries. It'll be a North American league, but it really is based on size of the of the market, opportunity, size of the venue, the number of games, what you want to pay the players, all that kind of stuff. And and you know uh, Tony's belief is that you know St. John's and, and Newfoundland deserves to have the very best that we can. So the very best that we can produce is the Super League, and that's that's another level up. The level of players are really good. There's, you know, if you look at just last night alone, there's four seven foot players on, on two on each team. That that doesn't exist very often in our in our TBL. I mean, we're typically six nine, six ten is the biggest we get. We don't get seven footers like that. And they have, you know, the the, the Rogues have two seven footers, and and that just starts to say the level of, of play has gone up. And but we still blend since we're just starting the Super League we blend TBL in so we can get the same number of games that, that you need here to, to make it a business and you know the, the TBL teams are still very competitive as, as you saw last week with Jamestown and you mentioned your, mentioned your wife Evelyn she was named uh, one of the 2023 Hope 25 uh, lifestyle. it's a lifestyle magazine one of the it's real high recognition so congratulations to her so what does it mean for the playoffs so is there a TBL champion and then a Super League champion is there a crossover how do you come up with who takes away the titles no that's that's that, that's that, that's that's a great question there's there's two different champions there'll be a Super League champion and there'll be a TBL champion a BSL and a TBL and and the BSL will be the, the, the top four teams this year will play in best of five series. So they'll play best uh, best three out of five, first round, and then a championship. TBL will have 24 teams will be in the playoffs, and they play best two out of three. So they end up being about the same length of a playoff schedule. It's just you've got to go through a few more rounds to get to a TBL championship than you would a BSL but you don't play as many games in each round. But it'll be it'll be exciting. The other thing is 
BSL has played in a more traditional basketball season. We start it in, in December and we, and we and we finish it in May, whereas TBL starts in in um, in uh, March and ends in June, and we have it more in a a little bit more into the spring, which again in Canada often the argument is it, once the weather breaks, people don't want to be indoors. So it's important to us that that we that we play at a time when people are really excited to be in, in, in the Mary Brown Center, and, which is a beautiful venue, and 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 enjoy enjoy what we're bringing. I've seen the I've seen the games. There is a high level of talent. Of course, basketball I think is the second most popular sport sport regarding participation, just behind soccer worldwide. People will wonder, you know, where some of these guys come from. And many of them, of course, would be NCAA players. And there's a very small percentage actually get a crack at the NBA for the obvious reason. It's a global sport. People from all over the world are playing. But like with the ECHL and the Newfoundland Growlers on the hockey side, you know, if you look at their league, and it's a lower rung of professional hockey, but they can talk about the fact that 745 former players in that league move on to the National Hockey League. Five former ECHL players just this, uh, this season are making their NHL debut. What does it look like for advanced? and maybe moving on to other leagues, whether it be big leagues in Spain or big leagues uh, in the United States, including the NBA. Do any players ever make it from this level to higher levels? Yeah, that's that's, that's another good question, Pat. We have we have currently we have six players in the NBA that have played in, in either either TBL or NBL because the NBL Canada that that, that that you used to have coming to, to the St. John's now is part of BSL. So you know, be, between our two leagues, we've had six guys in the NBA. We have probably 25 guys in the G League, which is which would be the equivalent to the AHL in hockey. And then we have uh, probably 300 players playing worldwide, everywhere from China to uh, to Europe to, to to Central and South America. And you know, it's it's interesting because all these leagues play, don't all play at the same time. Right. So we have some guys that will play. In the summer in, in South America, and they'll play in the in the winter in, in Europe, and come play in one of our leagues in the spring. So it's 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 a chance to make a nice living, travel the world, and, and live your dream. I mean, these guys are they're 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 living their dreams, and and we find our players. To your point, we have uh, I think we have about thirty percent of our players are Canadian. We have uh, probably sixty percent are American. The rest are from other countries. Um, we have a, a lot of NCAA Division One players, but we have you know, some really good CIS players. We have some really good Division Two and NAI players, and you know, it really is uh, what's the what's the right fit for the team and, and and the opportunity because your level doesn't dictate what you can play professionally because there's there's guys in the NBA that weren't high level Division One players. They were just at the right place and their their skill sets fit. Yeah, and I mean, when you talk about the number of Canadians, the percentage, 30% in your league, I mean, we've got 26 Canadians playing in the NBA, or we're on opening night rosters anyway for this season. It's not that long ago, it was an oddity to have a Canadian or one or two, even though we've produced MVPs from this country, of course, Mr. Nash, but now 26 Canadians playing in the NBA, which is remarkable stuff. Uh, final thoughts to you, David, before I have to get to my news break. Uh, just two things. There's, there's more Canadians than any other country in the NBA. Besides the U.S., there's more Canadians. There's more Division One players that come out of Toronto that come out of New York City. So Canada basketball is powerful. 
the two things I would encourage you, fans need to come out and support the Kennys. This business does cost money because it's expensive to be on an island where every away game you have to fly to, and, and they help the teams come in because that's the incentive to come play here. And B, any sponsors that listen, they, should, they could sure use the help because, again, the product is awesome. We just need to keep getting the word out, and I appreciate you, Patty, for, for giving us a chance to, to tell our story. We, we're looking forward to being here a long time, and it, it'll happen with you, with you with your community support. I appreciate your time this morning, David, and of course, the Newfoundland Rogues back in action against the KW Titans Saturday night at Mary Brown Center. Take good care of yourself. Stay in touch. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. David Magley, president of the Basketball League. Okay, let's take a break. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing today? Doing okay. How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, well, I sent a few pictures of my home at my area I live in, in Port of Bass. Uh, referring to Fiona and the damage that we sustain. And right now, I feel myself and my, my area is kind of falling through the cracks of, of government and, and being talked to at least and finding out what's, got, what's our next step ahead. When did you send in uh, any photos? I don't think I've seen uh, any this uh, morning. No, not this morning. Yesterday, I sent some in yesterday. Okay. And um, January 11th, I think, was the first time I sent that picture. I, I resent them yesterday. Okay, while we're talking, I'll see if I can find them so I can put some visuals in my head here. And I apologize for not getting back to every email. It's just overwhelming as a one-man show trying to deal with the volume of email I get. But let, let's go. So describe, what, describe what's going on with your property and what has or has not been done. Well, let's start from July last year. Now, actually, the, the provincial government got in contact with me referring to my, uh, my claim for uh, assistance, feeling disaster assistance. And that uh, wasn't complete because of my insurance. They couldn't get the paperwork. I couldn't get the paperwork for my insurance. And the government said, well, we can intervene for you if you like. And so I gave them the contact information. And a week later, they had the insurance forms from my insurance provider. Now, I went to the insurance company for 30-plus years, and that's where I went with them. But anyway, so the next step for the government was to uh, – Send someone out to do a, a home inspection for repair. So I meet the gentleman in the driveway, and the first thing he wants to do is just do a, a general walk around my property to have a look at it. And we get to the back side of my home, the south side exposure, and that's where all the damage was located. And he stands out, and, he, and he's looking at my house and looking at my land and that and the water edge. And then he looks at my neighbors, and he's, he's doing the same thing, looking at his water edge and that. And then he turns to me, and he says, your house and that house should be gone. He said, you guys are on the water. And at the time, I said, well, I don't know. And he said, I've done a lot of inspections in the last four or five months. He said, you're on the water. I said, yeah. I said, but the government has not even come and look at us. He said, well, he said, I got no input who keeps her home or loses her home. He said, but you're on the water. I said, yeah, I know. I understand that. Now, Patty, this is the first time that somebody actually come and looked at our house, done a visual inspection on our property, and that's the first thing he said to me. Now, he was there for three hours that day, taking pictures and, and, and measurements and uh, taking notes down. And at the end of it, it was kind of funny in a way, because I guess you got to uh, have a bit of fun with this. But he was taking pictures. And I went out with him. And I had to remind him because there was a sewage in falls. My neighbor's, right outside my neighbor's house was destroyed from the from film. And that's just going out on the beach there. My sewage actually is going into a lagoon in my backyard. So that's uh, pretty nice, too, as well. But... Uh, 
So he's taking pictures. I go with him. We go around the house. And we get on the north side of the property. And, and he laughs. He said, well, he said, I have a, a program back in my office that I'm going to input these pictures into. And they'll give me pretty much the actual size of your home. I said, okay, that's big. But he says, I have to be at least 30 feet from your home to take them. And, and then I laugh. What am I? I said, you're going to get wit. He said, that's deep water there. So he does his job and he leaves. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, I guess the, uh, the uh, supervisor in his company comes out and he wants to sign some paperwork. And he shows up and I take him around the property as well. And he's taking a couple of pictures. And when we get to the backside again, the south side, uh, I asked him what the government's going to do for me my seawalls and, and all my property that's gone. And he looked at me and said, well, they don't do landscaping. So I guess I gave him a little bit of a look. Cause I, like, and then he took his time, and he actually looked around the property, and then he looked at me and he said, well, in your case, there might be special circumstances. And I just said, well, I hope so, because, I mean, that land is actually my protection as well, uh, my seawalls, of course. So he went back and he done up the paperwork and he sent it into St. John's. I don't know what was entailed there for that company. And then I get a call in January and it's the, the government saying that they have my claim process. I said, okay, that's great. So she explained to me, I can get hundred percent of the claim if I get a contractor or I can take 70% of the claim and do the work myself. So I asked her, um, so what are we talking about for funds? And she explained to me how much money it was. And, and, and to myself, I thought, well, that's not very much money. So I asked her, what specifically was this money for? And she said, uh, to put your deck back on your home. I said, well, that's all right. I said, but I have no land. My land is gone. Oh, she said, uh, well, I'm going to have to talk to my supervisor concerning that. I said, but in the meantime, I said, uh, you had a contractor of a company come out and do the inspection of the house and that, and you don't have any pictures or any written up on that? She said, no. And then she said, can you send us some pictures? <laughs> so, so I sent some pictures in. Uh, I had, and she was going to give me a call back the following morning, but I haven't heard anything. That was uh, probably January the 7th or 6th. I'm not sure what it was. but So that's what was going on now with the house, but with where we're at for repairs, I guess. And, I mean, we're not talking about, you know, got to give people time, give government time. Fiona made landfall in Port of Basque September the 24th of 2022. I mean, ample time has has followed. You know, the individual cases are really quite troubling. I can only imagine how it feels for you as the property owner. But we need a, a careful audit of all the monies that flowed, how monies were dispersed, how people were treated differently in one community versus another, because Fiona didn't care if it was Port of Basque or a different community. It was a storm. We shouldn't be just labeling one community as the community of concern. And it's taken an awful long time for some of these absolutely necessary and needed repairs and or properties to be demolished and rebuilt to take place. It's just been aggravating to follow along with these stories. Yeah, right now that's where we're at with the government and that. But I mean, I think some of it's on our own doing as well because when the storm hit this on the, the 24th, like you said, on a Saturday morning, uh, <laughs> of course, we everybody took stock of what was left in their homes. And we said we're lucky because myself, my neighbor, we didn't lose our homes. So we, we sustained damage, quite a bit of damage. And that Monday and Tuesday, we actually went out and, and we actually cleaned up. I say we because I was actually on the road down the way to St. John's that morning, Monday morning. And my neighbors were out cleaning up their front yards. And what was surprising, it was, it was pouring rain. And, and, and Monday and Tuesday, they actually went out and got a tractor in and got trailers in. And they cleaned up the front yards to about 99, 95%. You wouldn't even notice there was any damage done. Now, the backyard was demolished. 
And that, and that kind of goes back towards uh, uh, an article. Brianna Goss, she came in and done an interview with myself, my brother, and aunt and uncle. And before she published the article on CBC News in September last year, the anniversary of the uh, storm, she actually went to Minister Parsons and gave him an opportunity to, I guess, do a rebuttal on it before uh, she published it. And in my regards, because I'm not losing my home, so in my regards, he said that uh, they had a drone out and the, the drone flew over and took videos of all the areas and, and the debris fields of what they were concentrating onto. And then they sent the engineers out to inspect the areas for being safe to stay in those areas. But I, I guess before the drone flew over, we had our debris field cleaned up. And I say that my neighbors had it cleaned up. So, I mean, that's one point that's, that's kind of uh, misleading, I guess, in a way. And then uh, during the week there, uh, before the storm had hit, uh, there was a couple. They had just started to build a brand-new home right on the side of the water. Now, if you had the pictures, you can see the home there, one of my pictures. But, and it was a beautiful home, and they had it to the basement. And then the, the storm hit. Now, of course, we didn't know at the time, but the couple did go down to the town hall. And they, uh, I don't know who they talked to down there and asked if they can keep building. And the town hall said yes. So we're in a state of emergency. There's houses gone in the bay that I live into. Uh, we have millions and millions of dollars in infrastructure on our roadway across the bay here. But they still built their house there, which is which is fine, I guess, because it seemed to be fit and safe. That's it. And it's a beautiful home, and it's, it's a retirement home, which is awesome. And then the same week, right after the storm, we're out mulling around the properties that, and uh, – uh, the town, a photographer for, that the town hired, he was up taking pictures of our backyard. He was uh, doing a uh, document all the damage and that. And the counselor was with him, and the counselor was saying, and asked him what he's doing. He said, Well, I'm, I'm taking pictures of the back, the damage. So when he came up, the counselor, he looked in our backyard, and he's like, Whoa, we didn't know about this. So <laughs> I was like, No way. So I actually called him here, and I called Brian, and Brian's a good friend of mine. I, I said, Brian, I said, we got a counselor in the backyard saying that you guys don't know nothing but the damage that we sustained. And Brian said, no, no. He said, we got, we got you guys. We know you got damage in your cold there. And I said, I said that's fine, Brian, because that was early in the week. And I know there was so much trying to go downtown there with the damage in East End Channel. I said, as long as, as long as you got us, Brian, I'm happy with that, right? So I think we, we kind of got looked over right? as, as time went on and, and – Everybody's trying to, get, to move on with it, but we're still living with it, right? We're still in that position that, like I said, I got a lagoon in my backyard. That's just, I don't even want to talk about it. It's, it's disgusting is what it is. So. It sounds like it. Uh, Sean, I'm a bit late for the break, but uh, keep us in the loop with progress. I'll do that. Thanks, Patty. Thanks, Sean. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that's something. Uh, Break time. When we come back, hospital wait times, and there's a show review coming from We Will Rock You. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Clayton, you're on the air. Yeah. Hello. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Not too bad. I'm calling today. You might have out the hospital there in the corner. Well, the liberals are supposed to have tried to fix the health system, but it made worse. It's not got better. My buddy went in the other night. He had to get an ambulance from there, a senior. He had to call the underline. Line. They signed the ambulance, went in, trying to get done what they done. He had a mini stroke. They took him and put him in fast track and back out in the waiting room, sitting out in the waiting room for 12 hours. Then they took another fellow that had heart troubles that had to go there. He had to go for x-rays. He put E back out there. A fellow come in there from Port of Vest to get his leg done. 
surgery on his leg. They had to cancel it all, sign it on. Why did they no cancel set. it? He had come in again another time, same thing, signed it back home, no set. There's nothing being done in there. My buddy was in the wheelchair, couldn't move the wheelchair. He had to go for EKG, nobody to push him. He got nobody in there now to help people. He used to have somebody doing that. He had to get after the nurse, and the nurse wouldn't move to it. Finally, he got him to do it. Got down there and got it done. Then he had nobody to push him back. He couldn't push the wheel, do the wheelchair himself, because the wheelchair was broke. And nobody to help him. He always had somebody there for that. They're cutting the health system all the time, the liberal government. They're not doing nothing to help us out there. They're not helping the seniors out there. They said they're doing things to help the seniors. They're lying about that because they're not helping those seniors out there. We're not getting no help. And we're out here trying to fight. I called the minister of health office. I called the premier's office. I called Jerry Burns office. They're doing nothing. They're just ignoring us. And the one other thing, how uh, come the seniors in St. Johnson get a bus pass, governor's paying for it, and we over there can't get one? That's going to discrimination, too. The government is not doing right again for the people. They're spending a lot of money helping out the, the homeless. That's okay. And the druggies. Millions and millions of dollars in that hotel there by the airport. It's ain't downs. But what about the seniors out there? And what about us people? What's... The hospital needs to be fixed in there. The health system is awful when you got to go in there and sit 12, 14 hours, and then they send you back out in the waiting room when you get in there. Well, unfortunately, it's the same thing here. Uh, when we talk about wait times inside the hospital and surgeries being cancelled and postponed and all the rest of it, what sort of busing system is in place in Cornerbrook, Clayton? Pardon? What kind of busing do you have available in Cornerbrook? Oh, we got the bus system in. We got Murphy's got the bus system in. So and, that's what uh, I was going to ask. So it's a private company does the busing. They're doing it. They, they contract it to the city. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And uh, they're in there, you know, to see the doctor. People are leaving. My buddy was sitting there for 12 hours. He, another fellow, he watched 10 people leave. Get up. And people cursing and swearing because of what's going on there. They can't, you know. There's got to be something done. It's time if Furry don't want to do nothing, if he don't want to try to fix this, I said, why don't we get out of there? Let somebody else in there that might want to fix it. Because it's got to be fixed. There's too many people getting hurt, going in there, leaving and going home, can't see a doctor. The problem here is a lot of people got near a doctor and they got no choice but to go there. Yeah, provincial, uh, province-wide problem, unfortunately, for a lot of people. We don't know what the real number is or the accurate number. The government will tell us somewhere around 50,000 people without a family doctor. The NLMA, the Medical Association, said it's more like 136,000, so there's a long way between those two numbers. I hope you're doing okay, Clayton. I appreciate the time. Anything else quickly? Yeah, uh, I hope they're going to start doing something about it because seniors need to help in the cottages because the cottages is not good either. I had to get after them to fix my door. And they got, they fixed it and left again the wooden fix so you could see it around both choice. You come back finally, they done a good job this time. They got her all fixed as good this time. Glad to hear it. Yeah, and uh, they need, need some work done with these cottages here, Mike, and seniors is 
seniors are very important there. And it got to be done. Understood. Found some money. You can find it for everything else. Find some money and put there for those people to do the work on these cottages. Who owns the cottages? What is that in reference to? Western Hill. Okay. I appreciate the time, Clayton. You take care. You know, they're not helping the seniors. Understood. We, we need help, too. Of course you do, and I appreciate your time, and I hope you get it. I'm glad they did a good job second time around. Yeah, okay, yeah. Thanks, Patty, and you have a good day. You too, sir. All the best. Bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's see if we get a quick review of the, uh, I don't know what we're going to get here, but the NSOs, We Will Rock You. Good morning, Margo. You're on the air. Thanks, Patty, for taking my call. I want to send a virtual bouquet to each and every one who uh, provided with a whole... Oh, my gosh, it was a, wor- a week's worth of entertainment last night in two hours, which went, which flew by, actually. And Kellyanne, Kevins, uh, Kellyanne Evans, excuse me, um, she was the uh, mainstay, of course, with uh, the whole of the NSO orchestra behind her. And um, Adrienne Fitzpatrick, uh, Vicky Harnett, Steve Maloney, I've never heard his voice before, but it was magnificent. And my own nephew, Steve Power, he was terrific, did a couple of solos. But the music was spectacular, and they did play my favorite song, which is uh, The Show Must Go On. And if Freddie Mercury were alive, he would be smiling, honest to goodness. It is a fantastic production, and there's three more shows tonight, tomorrow night, and Sunday, and I urge anyone who is... Uh, who can attend the Arts and Culture Centre, to please do so because it's magnificent. And I hope you're going to go, Patty, because you will be really, you will be rocked. <laughs> I've been to uh, several NSO performances. It's it's mm-hmm. really a great night out. I mean, Kellyanne Evans is a, just a tour de force on stage. Oh, Terrific stuff. And your nephew, yeah. Steve, he's always great. And I'm surprised you never heard Steve Maloney before. He's a fabulous artist. Isn't he yeah, great? He's great? Honest to goodness. First time I've ever heard him. Uh, and uh, actually, I was talking to my brother, Len, and he said that Steve said he's got a voice that's out of this world. So, <laughs> so that was his uh, opinion. And, of course, uh, Steve's uh, partner, uh, his first violin, Heather Cow, and she's tremendous as well. So, it, you know, the whole of the... Uh, the whole of the stage was uh, it was alive and it was read and she encouraged the people to sing along and to clap and make some noise right so it was fantastic I got to say and I thoroughly enjoyed it and myself and Gary and Jerry and Nick uh, four of us sat together in the balcony and we were entertained. I'm glad to hear it, Margo. I appreciate the uh, review of the show and of course my friend Katie Sullivan is first trumpet. Ah, very good. Katie's awesome. I I cannot... uh, I cannot... Words, you know, they leave me, honest to God, because the... the... the the amount of uh, people who are so talented here on this small island of Newfoundland and Labrador, it's just... You know, I cannot. Words leave me, honest to goodness. But thank you for taking my call, Patty, and always a pleasure to talk with you. My pleasure. Thanks, Margo. Thanks, Dan. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. Do not go away. 
Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for Seaville Port of Port. He's the leader of the official opposition. That's Tony Wakeham. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. I just wanted to curious like you are as to why uh, Mr. Diamond and Mr. Osborne uh, didn't phone in this morning. I wondered, did it have anything to do with the by-election that will take place on Monday? Possibly. I mean, I don't really know. I was disappointed because, you know, when Mr. Minister Osborne was here, we talked about some healthcare operational issues, and I asked if we could do this with uh, regarding procurement in particular. He suggested Diamond join us, and that's fine by me, and I think that's a helpful voice, but... I don't know exactly why. All I know is, is that it happened. Well, there's certainly a lot of uh, important questions that need to be asked, especially uh, when it comes to this uh, airport, uh, Comfort Airport deal and, and $7 million a year for $21 million in total. I mean, that uh, deal, apparently, the proponent has liberal ties, and apparently it was an unsolicited proposal that quickly turned into a $21 million windfall for a hotel that's valued by the city of St. John's at $3.7 million. So, again, why would the Liberals lease a building for almost six times its value? Why wasn't a contract put out to tender or RFP? Where's the value for money assessment for taxpayers' money? Is it the best option? Now, all of these are questions that, uh, that people need answers to. And the Liberal government hasn't provided them. Yeah, I, I mean, the value of the building as a piece of real estate property is one thing. But, you know, with the new hotels in the area, and now, I mean, good for the business owner, I suppose, but maybe not the best piece of business for the government. Because that's basically uh, 100% vacancy at 140 bucks a night, 365 days a year for three years straight. When, in fact, the competition is more serious than it has been in that area for a hotel room. And this is a boon for uh, Judy Sparks' canoe, but maybe not great for me and you. Well, that's exactly right. And we also don't know what else is not covered in this uh, in this $21 million contract that the Liberal government has let. I mean, is billing security, cleaning, custodial staff? You know, all the things that normally go with a business of property taxes, snow clearing, maintenance. You know, what exactly are we getting for $21 million? Those are questions that uh, people want answers to. And it's just a reflection of the fact that this Liberal government had no plan for housing. That's what this ultimately came down to, the fact that they went years and years and years talking about a plan for affordable housing and just do not have one and it's now as a result of that we're in the spending all this extra monies because of a failure to plan on behalf of the Liberal government. We're also seeing it of course on the healthcare side with the new Costco Health Hub. I mean a building that $80 million plus that we're actually going to that will not increase, in, increase sorry, patient wait times that will not result in any new appointments. I mean that's that in itself. Someone described it to me as uh, it's like they're opening an, a new Grace Hospital without inpatient beds. I mean, that's the type of expenditure that this government is doing, and there doesn't seem to be any kind of planning going into it. One thing that's not covered at the uh, transition home is three meals a day for the entirety of three years as well, so that's another price tag. 
Absolutely, and this this is what's happening. You know, we've we've got one uh, crisis after another. We've got reaction, uh, one reaction after another, and that has resulted in what uh, expenditures being made. It's fine to make all kinds of expenditures on assets, but at the end of the day, especially on the healthcare side, it comes down to people, and that comes back to a human resource health plan. And the fact that you have actually have people who help people, because that's what healthcare is all about. Once you get past the buildings and the bricks and the mortar and the technology and the equipment, it's about people helping people. And that's been our issue right now. Uh, f- fair enough. Before we run out of time this morning, Tony, I see you're in the news talking about the rideshare license has, has now been suspended, given the fact the media are disclosed or uncovered the fact that the CEO is facing all those very serious charges. You know, it's one thing to be told that the process worked the way it's crafted, but that's really not good enough. I mean, if the process is, bro- is broken or flawed, let's fix it. And very much akin to things like procurement. We can follow the letter of the law or the letter of the regulations regarding procurement it doesn't mean we're doing it right. So on this front, it just seems to me that if that's the process, let's not pretend that we followed a good process. We followed a really dumb process. Let's fix that. Absolutely, Patty. I mean, when the minister stands up and says we followed process, that's no defense. This is nothing more than a fiasco. It should never have happened. There should have been due diligence done. It took investigative reporting by the news media, I believe it was your station, to uncover this and a hastily canceled news conference as a result of this. This should be an embarrassment for the government of Newfoundland and Labrador, for this Liberal government, and it certainly doesn't give the people of Newfoundland and Labrador any comfort in that government has the right process in place. So absolutely, don't talk about we followed process. Fix the process and make sure it never happens again. Fair enough. Back to the transition issue at the Comfort Inn. So if that's not the right play... What is the right play if you had your hand on the uh, levers that could pull how we deal with homelessness and emergency shelters and the lack of a minimum operating oversight at those shelters? So what would you do if if not that? Well, again, I think it comes down to the whole piece about the planning piece. I've said this before on several occasions that, you know, when the government and the Liberal government stands up at budget time and announces they're going to have 850 new bills and and we've had 750 new bills a year before and, and then we only find out there actually would have been 11 new ones. I go back to that, that actual same budget and why weren't we announcing at the time that we would have had all these units repaired? Now they're doing the work now and they're making all these announcements now. But that could have been done, should have been done. If you had to have a housing strategy in place, and that's what's missing here. For years and years and years, there was no housing strategy. So we're now into emergency shelters. And, and a lot of people, that's not the ideal situation. That's fine for a very short time. But at the end of the day, where's the long-term plan to deal with all the homeless people? And not just in St. John's or people that need homes. Because it's, it's, it's people who need homes, too. All across this province, we're seeing rising interest rates having an impact on people's affordability to stay in their own homes. We've seen seniors having issues with affordability because of the increased cost of heating their homes. So there are lots of issues that are, that are around this whole piece, and that's what needs to happen. It has to be looked at, and it has to be viewed from that. How do we keep people in their homes? How do we turn around and get those units repaired faster? They should have been done. And how do we how do we find affordable housing and how do we kickstart it?
Yeah. And I mean, some people who would be in a transition home, unless we're talking about units being built and owned and operated by Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation, then some people are still going to need this type of wraparound support as opposed to simply a roof over your head, given, uh, you know, a, uh, an LHC unit. But I get your point. I appreciate the time, Tony. Thanks for the call. Oh, Patty, I just wanted to add one more thing. Uh, today, uh, myself and two of my uh, caucus colleagues, Lloyd Pard and Craig Pardy, are on our way out to the funeral for uh, Derek Bragg uh, to show the respects on behalf of the PC caucus. Derek was a uh, great MHA, good cabinet minister, and while we often banter back and forth about who, what policy would I implement or would the Liberals implement, at the end of the day, uh, Derek was well respected by all people in the House of Assembly and certainly was accessible as a minister. And uh, as I've admitted, I, I didn't really know Derek Bragg at all. I'd only maybe met him once or twice, and that was in passing. Of course, what I've spoken to him many, many times on this show. Uh, and what happened, when we reached out and asked for his, uh, his time, for him to come out, he did every time. And I think people do respect the fact that when there was really contentious issues to be broached in some of the most difficult portfolios that I wouldn't want, like the fishery, he went out there. And he talked to them, and they weren't pleased with them, and they heckled him, and I'm sure they yelled some unkind things at him, but he went out and took it on. So I think there's a, a modicum of respect that comes with it. Uh, very quickly, there's just something floated in here that someone wants me to ask you. Uh, this is, a, I'll leave his name out of it, but what do you make of the Teladoc RFP? Because there's big questions to be asked about affordability on that front as well. You know, local companies and other companies in this country that are well-equipped to execute that virtual care didn't get a look in, albeit for some of it at a third of the cost. Any comments on the Teladoc RFP? Well, again, I think it's, a, it's another example of a rush. It's not a strategy. It was simply a reaction. And I think about how that service might work when I think about virtual health care. I think about hubs in our own province, you know, whether it's Gander and Grand Falls and Cornerbrook and St. John's and St. Anthony and Labrador and Goose. There's lots of places that could be hubs where all of these other smaller facilities like New West Valley and other locations, Bayward, Springdale, they could be calling in to an emergency room physician or virtual health care in our own hubs. Why does it take us to have to go into the United States market? We should be increasing our own staffing, coming up with a plan that in our own emergency departments and when we got our regional centers where people can access that type of service there as opposed to having to call somebody in the United States. I mean, that to me is where we sh- what we should be looking at, not simply looking to a, to a doctor in anywhere in the United States or somewhere else. And the fact that we still don't take advantage of the opportunity that we have with nurse practitioners in our province is also a problem. Yeah, that issue there, I'm pretty sure, without saying it out loud, some 80% of the nurse practitioners in the province work in the public system. If they were able to hang out their own shingle and get and bill MCP directly, I would imagine that 80% gets reduced to 50% in 60 days because we all know the, comp- the complications of working in the public system. I appreciate the time, Tony. Uh, safe travels on your way to Greenspan. Thank you, Betty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Tony Wakem, PC member for Stephenville Port of Port, of course, leader of the official opposition. Let's take a break. Tomorrow is Family Literacy Day, and Emma Craig is a librarian with Newfoundland Labrador Public Library. She joins us right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to Emma Craig. She's a librarian with the NL Public Libraries, and good morning, Emma. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? Doing excellent. Thank you. How about you? 
oh, you know, you can't complain. It's a Friday. It's starting to warm up a little bit out here in St. John's. Hopefully we'll get out of this cold snap soon. Yeah, I hope so. It's been pretty frigid week, no doubt about that. The best part about January 27th when we talk about Literacy Day is they label it the way that I think it absolutely should be labeled as Family Literacy Day. We'll talk about adult literacy programs and encouraging children to read. But reading is absolutely a family thing. And, you know, notably, when we heard about the math and science scores, reading scores also fell across the country since 2018 by some 10 points. So these types of issues, it's not just throwaway celebrations in libraries. It's becoming more important than ever. Oh, for sure. And uh, in libraries, as as being known for books and reading and supporting education, we take family literacy very seriously in trying to encourage families to consider their role when it comes to helping their children um, with their literacy skills. It just, for me, and I, I would imagine most parents are the same, it's not only a way to occupy your time, but the developing mind of a child, about 90% of it is done by the time you're five years of age. So learning the, the love of reading early on is a lifelong love. I mean, they don't run out of, you know, just enjoying picture books and pop-up books, and all of a sudden they don't like to read anymore. If you read a lot as a child, very likely you're going to read a lot as an adult. Oh, that's very true. And it's also the idea of, like, kids seeing their their family members, their caregivers, seeing them reading and understanding that reading is not just something you do in school. It's not just something that you're doing for your English class. It's something that's relevant to your whole life. And also just uh, something that we always tell parents is trying to make reading fun and doing it by expanding past the experience of just reading to them. Yeah, and I mean, there's just so many different genres of books because it almost, you know, as long as we're not talking about anything destructive, but it almost doesn't matter what you're reading because comprehension skills can be associated with reading a graphic novel, a comic book, a textbook, an encyclopedia, you know, children's books, uh, Harry Potter, whatever it is. It's all about comprehension. So don't try to pigeonhole into something that you think is more, maybe more highbrow or more academic in leaning. Reading is fun when you're actually having fun reading as opposed to being told, here's what you should read. Of course. Uh, That's something we always tell parents. We want to encourage them to obviously think of the books that they think their child would be interested in, but also encouraging their kids to explore things that they're interested in and finding new types of reading. Actually, an activity I love to uh, recommend to parents with young children when they're just starting to learn how to read is trying to just even point out words and stuff in your environment. So if you're at the grocery store or if you see a stop sign, like explain to your kids that the letters that they see on that thing is actually corresponding with the spoken language that they're already pretty knowledgeable about by the time they reach around three and four. I'm sure most parents get their heads talked off by their children. This might be a silly question. It just popped to my head. Are there different ways that librarians and or teachers are encouraging parents to how to talk to their child about reading? Because, you know, it used to be all about phonics. You know, that's how I learned to read, I'm pretty sure. Are there new approaches or tips that you can offer to parents who really want to do it, but, you know, it's hard to just sit down and read a book and all of a sudden pretend that your child is absorbing what you're laying down. Of course, and that actually gets um, a little more into what we call early literacy practices. So here at the public libraries, we actually have five best practices we always tell parents to do with their kids. Um, So obviously reading is a big part of it. Practicing writing, so teaching your kids about what the shapes of letters look like. Uh, But other components that people don't think about when it comes to teaching your child literacy is the idea of talking about the books you read. So having that conversation afterwards about 
about like, hey, what did you enjoy about the book? Uh, what was your favorite part? Or um, singing. We do a lot of songs and rhyming activities at the libraries at our different story time programs. So like the idea of like creating this fun experience and of course playing. So this could be just like um, having the kid imagine themselves in the world of the book they explored or bring in puppets. I have become a really big fan of puppets since becoming a librarian. They're so fun to incorporate in story times and just like add a more interactive element to books and reading. Yeah, it's much more engaging. I'm glad I asked because that was a great answer. I, I wonder if it gets a little bit more complicated when we talk about reading scores. And I, I almost hate to bring this up or to say, it, but it's just a fact of the matter here. Newfoundland and Labrador, we have the highest functional illiteracy rate amongst adults in the country. Some 44% here versus uh, about 24% uh, nationally, which probably bleeds into the fact that maybe not as much reading is happening at the home as we would all like because of that base fact. What do you think? How do you think we should address things like that? It's really hard to say because obviously um, a lot of my stuff is not concerned with that area. But that, but we do. You're right that that does have an effect on kids and their early reading. Uh, children of low literacy parents, um, they're exposed to fewer words in their early years, which can really cause skill gaps. Um, and you're also right about literacy skills falling in general. Um, I have a stat here from ABC Life Literacy, which is the group that started Family Literacy Day, that says almost 40% of, of Canadian youth do not have suitable literacy skills. And that honestly just reinforces the idea of family literacy. you got to think. Um, I think a lot of parents and adults or caregivers think that, like, obviously school is where kids are going to be doing most of their learning when it comes to those aspects. But in reality, kids are spending more time at home they're with you about probably much longer than they spend inside a classroom so the idea of family literacy is teaching parents and caregivers that like they're it's so important to encourage the importance of reading and engaging in literacy related activities as a family together rather than just relying on just the schools to do so fair enough uh, anything special planned for literacy day tomorrow family literacy day tomorrow well, we have a couple activities um, happening throughout the province. All of our different libraries have different activities happening. A lot of them are actually happening today, but I do know a few libraries that will have something going on. Uh, speaking for St. John's, since that's where I'm primarily located, here at the AC Hunter Public Library, we're having a family fun afternoon with the YWCA, so that is this afternoon. But if people want to check out what's happening with their local library, I always encourage them to check out their Facebook pages. Almost every one of our libraries branches have one um, and just see what's happening as well we've been running a giveaway for the course of January so our family literacy day giveaway which is on our social media pages for NL public libraries Facebook and Instagram and you can enter that to win a fun prize for your family and that ends actually after tomorrow sounds awesome and of course libraries are more than books the cost to replace or to rotate all of the materials you have has gone up but the funding has been stagnant for a long long time People think that maybe the libraries are a thing of the past. They're not. People attending libraries is really still strong numbers right across the country. So it costs more to operate, but the funding hasn't kept up with the need. I want to say on your behalf that we need to pay attention to that and get more back in line so the libraries can rotate material as they know they should, as opposed to just, just being stuck because they don't have enough money. 
Well, thank you, Patty. We do always appreciate like people recognizing our value and recognizing um, the need for funding. So it's always great to have people out in our community who are willing to uh, voice that. And what a better day to bring awareness to that than Family Literacy Day. Happy Family Literacy Day to you. And thanks for making time for the show. Thanks for having me on today. You're welcome. Bye, Emma. Bye-bye. Emma Craig, she's a librarian with the a librarian with the NL Public Libraries. All right, let's go to line number three. Harley, you're on the air. Uh, yeah, Patty, I got uh, I got a concern with the health care. Again, as, as usual, you know, it's, you know, they brought my mother-in-law in by ambulance in Cornerbrook in the Western Memorial. She's two months short of 91 years old. She was waiting a few minutes short of 90 uh, of 23 hours to see a doctor. You know, this is not good enough, boy. This is just not good enough. So she and she was sitting up in a chair. They didn't even have a gurney there to put her on. You know, well, you wouldn't treat a dog like that. It's horrible. So just so I have a clear understanding here, she presents at an emergency room to be told she's being admitted, or she was knew she was being admitted, and they still had to wait almost a full day. How did well, what they, exactly happened? They, they, she they brought her in by ambulance, and she sat a triage nurse. They put her out in the room to wait. She was throwing up blood. This is why they, uh, this is why they brought her in. Oh and I'm, no, I'm no doctor, but uh, to me, I think throwing up blood could be something pretty serious, you know. Of course. And then, the, and then the keeper waiting for 23 hours. Boy, somebody, somebody is not doing their job somewhere. Yeah, it's a long time, regardless of how old you are. But if you're a sick 91-year-old woman, then of course that's an excruciating 24 hours. This, it is. This is terrible, boy. This should not happen. And how is she now? Uh, she's uh, doing a little better the past few days. Thank God. Yes, thank God. I'm glad she's to hear still, that news. Yeah. Well, now they still. I don't know. I don't think they've done any tests or anything on her yet. But uh, but she is doing a little better. During the course of the long wait. Then, you know, I mean, you mentioned the fact that she was sat up in a chair versus given a little bit, bit more comfort lying on a gurney. Was there any communication with staff, with uh, the family, as opposed to just sitting in silence and just waiting for, to hear your name called? Uh, very little. I, I wasn't there. My my wife was there with her, but okay. uh, I I don't I don't think there was a whole lot of. Uh, Oh, you know, you're going to be in soon and this kind of thing. She just, you mostly just waiting. I, I think she was there three or four hours, and they told her she was, uh, it was too ahead of her after being there two or three hours. And then she waited to remain there 23 hours, just, just waiting, you know. There's the stories of the amount of time people have to wait, whether to be to see be seen, period, in an emergency room, and or after being told that you need to be admitted before you actually get up on the on the floor. Uh, wish her well for me this uh, this morning, Harley. I appreciate your time. Thanks. Uh, something, yeah, something got to be said about this, Patty. You know, and, and I I don't want to be at this every day, but you you know, you know, somebody got to start doing their job, I think, and, and doing a little bit better. No argument for me, sir. Okay. Thanks for your time, Patty. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. Okay. Uh, time for the 11 o'clock news. When we come back, we're talking dialysis. We're going to get a reaction to the announcement yesterday about the education accord from the NLTA's president, Trent Langdon. Don't go away. 
Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Say good morning to the president of the NLTA. That's Trent Langdon. Trent, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Good morning, Paddy. How you been? Been very well, thanks. How about you? Good, good, thanks. Uh, yeah, I just obviously wanted to call in regarding uh, the education accord that was announced yesterday. Yeah, let's go. Look, I, I read yeah. the the press release from your organization. Let's start with the fact that it's been, I don't know, 15, 16 months since the recommendations came from the Teacher Allocation Review Committee. Remind us what they were, because from, my, from where I sit, and I could be wrong, if those recommendations are included or implemented, and you, know, you look at class size and composition, a lot of the issues would be dealt with simply by uh, accommodating the recommendations from that committee. So remind us what they were. Right, yeah. So just some, some uh, examples, I guess. Uh, it, there were some recommendations around class caps, and, and the issue in this province has been the class caps that are in place aren't even they're, they're considered soft and hard caps. So, uh, you know, you might call it a hard cap, but they then call them soft caps so you, so you can add a, a child or two to each room. Uh, so class caps uh, were in there as well as uh, uh, how do you best service special needs uh, children that might be in those rooms, percentages of children that should be in those rooms. And that's exactly what we wanted that kind of report to report back on. And um, and our concern with this education accord is that once again we're we're back at the table giving data, giving information. Well, we've been doing this for years, and uh, as you referenced, the teacher allocation uh, review has taken place. The uh, uh, the task force uh, a year or two ago for, by the premier that was there. And geez, there's tons of reviews and commissions and reports that we have the information. Our big concern is uh, talk of these larger words of modernization and transformation when it's Bottom line, we've got to meet the basic needs of children first before we can look at any modernization of curriculum and so on. So they're talking about four pillars, I think, is the reference that was used. So early learning and childhood development, of course, and absolutely. Engage, education, engagement, and transformation. I don't really know what that means. Health and well-being in education environments, okay. And post-secondary learning uh, across the lifespan. Do you have any idea what how we define education engagement and, and transformation? What does that mean? <laughs> well, uh, I chuckle because I, I think I'm in the same boat as you right now, Patty, to be honest. Uh, when we hear transformation being touted by government, when we hear modernization, and when we hear these phrases, at no, nowhere within do you see within those four pillars a reference to K-12. Whereas in the first one and the last one, you, you see reference to early learning and then post-secondary. So uh, our argument is, okay, it has to be a K-12 focus within those. And we've been given indication it is, but we would have loved to have seen it written that way. Um, but as for engagement and so on, those those are very vague words. Um, and, you know, vagueness is sometimes used to, to give freedom to implement things. And that's a worrisome piece for us. When we've been hearing for years uh, from our membership, certainly since COVID, uh, like I had said earlier, the basic needs of children around. Um, just the violence we're seeing in our schools, the, the, the day-to-day needs of getting food in the mouths of these children, um, the, the home lives that some of these children are bringing to, um, to school and trying to get them through behaviorally. That's, that's ultimately where the investment needs to be. And, uh, and no doubt, you know, in a perfect world where modernization of curriculum and so on comes with it, uh, to me, that does not need to be priority right now. But again, we work with government. We'll do what we can to, do, um, to support and do whatever government is, is trying to get in terms of um, data collection. But we certainly feel that the data is already there. It certainly feels like it. Yeah. It feels like you and I have talked about the, about the data many, many times over the yeah, course of yeah. the last several years. You know, I, I don't know, and this is not 
not for you to do the workout for or on. Right. But, you know, even things like when we look at, you know, Jim Din read a quote uh, from 2004 that's still applicable today to the education system. Yep. Then we know what the education summit in 2017 that was brought to bear by Premier Ball. Then we know about the chronic absenteeism report brought by the Child and Youth Advocate in 2019. To the best of your knowledge, has anything changed with understanding why a child's not in school, inclusion of various departments outside simply the Department of Education to try to wrap our minds around that? Because it doesn't matter if you have a child in school as a listener this morning, if the global data shows that if you're chronically absent in grade six, 75% of those children will not graduate high school, that's a problem for every single person in this province. Has any work been done on that to the best of your knowledge? And not to my knowledge. Uh, it certainly comes up in various conversations, and there, there is some committee work where it might uh, come through, but, but bottom line, if you're, if you're talking about truly digging into what's causing absenteeism and so on, uh, it wouldn't take long to find out what, what's causing that. It's, uh, there's no real um, accountability in terms of who's responsible for a child who's not going to school, and I've said that to you before on a previous uh, uh, discussion we've had, is that, uh, uh, to my knowledge and what I've been told, uh, as a guidance counselor myself, when I call a, a social worker and ask the question, uh, I have a child who hasn't shown up in two weeks, who's responsible? I hear it's not the mandate of child protection or now CSSD. Uh, so what's, what we're finding is teachers are taking them on themselves to try and make contact with these homes and build some type of connection. Uh, and meeting after meeting after meeting is held to try to get them back. But you're exactly right. I referenced your name this morning, and I don't want you to get uh, too big of a head there. But, uh, um, you know, you've often said that uh, if you get education right, everything else will follow. And education is one of the primary social determinants of health uh, that has been touted in, in social research and uh, uh, best practices around the world. And if we, if we got that right and people understood, but to go back to your initial point around absenteeism, my God, that, that alone is, uh, is one of the hugest issues that we're facing. And we're talking about modernization of curriculum and, and approaches. We need to get to the basic uh, social development of these kids. We might have outsmarted ourselves a little bit on this file because, you know, we talk about moving away from standardized tests. And I'm not suggesting that we go back to Publix and for 50% of your mark and, you know, buckle down and too bad if you're not good at exams. Yep. Yep. But the fact of the matter is a lot of the changes that have taken place in the education system in the last two decades, I guess in an effort to make it better, in an effort to improve the outcomes for students, in an effort to be more modern, but the fact of the matter is, you know, it, whether it be the inclusive model or whatever it is, when math, science, and reading scores continue to decline year over year over the course of the last two decades, it's okay to admit that maybe we're on the wrong track. You know, I, it's yeah, not a so bad thing. It's not about, you know, standing firm on your laurels and saying, well, we know what we're doing. We've got the right ideas. Well, the fact of the matter is the outcomes are not keeping up with the ideas. No, I think you're exactly right. And uh, backtracking, I, I'm a full supporter of that, that if, you know, uh, bottom line, accountability is a big question mark that comes up in our schools and in certainly in teacher meetings behind the scenes uh, in that uh, are we building enough accountability in, in our children? Uh, are they give it, being given too many chances to complete certain assignments and work and chances at tests? And even with two teenagers myself, I, I question sometimes if, if the system is are we truly preparing these children uh, uh, for just uh, let alone university, but just life in general? that life often doesn't give you a second chance. So it's, it's that overall push of, and I don't think it's a situation where we need to throw everything out because I do think there's some benefits of course in not. those approaches. You know, because we need to meet these children where they are. Not everybody can get it on the first crack. In the end, if they know it, they know it. That's the ultimate goal. But um, in some ways, we've uh, we've uh, opened up the doors too much. And again, to go back to the accord, my fear, uh, and I'll, I'll state this piece, is that uh, any modernization will then become – 
uh, the, the, a new philosophy that once again is coming through and will get the focus and we're not truly getting to the root of the problems in our system, which is the, the social needs. A hundred percent. So we'll see where this goes, but, you know, and good on the two educators who are taking this on, and notably yes. they are uh, Anne Burke and a lady named Goodenough, I believe, is yes. whether uh, or not I'm pronouncing Karen, that. Karen Goodenough, yeah, both from the university, and by both people that I, I've met with before and are great people, and I got no doubt in my mind they're going to come through and do, do, some, do some good work. Uh, but our argument is this, they need to hear from us. And by the way, we have a think tank coming up, which was uh, uh, presented by a government a few uh, a few months back to say that they wanted to partner with us on that. And we're doing that at the end of February. But once again, it's another step, another data collector. When uh, it uh, uh, I, Just by listening to Open Line, I think people can really gauge pretty quickly uh, what's going on in our system. And, and ultimately, it's to parents. You know, parents, uh, I'd like to see parents becoming more active and being more vocal about uh, what they need to see in the, in the system, especially when it comes election time. You know, ask those education questions. Um, get on Open Line and say, look, this is what I need in the system. Because you ask any educator out there they want what's best for the kids especially if they had the resources to support them well especially with the one of the final lines in your uh, reaction press release uh, says uh, okay we all know that the working conditions for teachers are the learning conditions for students so this is not just about teachers as professionals belly aching about working Mm -hmm. conditions because those conditions are the learning conditions period they're one and the same Uh, i appreciate the time as usual trent and, and thanks a million, Patty. Always appreciate your support. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, take it easy. Bye-bye. Trent Langman is the president of the NLTA. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five to get more to the independent candidate running in the by-election of Portugal Coast. Well, pardon me, Conceptua East Bell Island. That's Daryl Harding. Daryl, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing okay. How about you? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, kudos to you for, for giving everybody a, a voice uh, from a person with a problem right up to the um, to the people that make the decisions to try to solve the problems. Uh, I sent you a... Go ahead. I said I'm happy to do it. Uh, you know, you're, you're doing an invaluable service. Uh, I sent you a healthcare discussion paper earlier this morning. Uh, it's a lot, a lot to it. Uh, it's a lot of data, a lot of facts, a lot of figures collected. If there's 185 pages. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of work. Uh, Mr. Lee sent it to me. I wish I had had it earlier in the campaign. Uh, but there's a lot of ATIPA uh, information there, and uh, we'll chat more about it next week, I'm sure, once you get a chance to have a look at it. The reason I'm calling today is... Uh, I've uh, I've been asked to speak about the dialysis situation for our district. Um, the situation in in Conception Bay East Bell Island, um, especially for Bell Island, is that hours before a patient has to go for dialysis in St. John's, um, either a taxi or a friend or an ambulance has to get on a challenged ferry service to go to St. John's. Uh, spend hours on a machine, and then come back and wait for hours to get back home, if they get back home at all. Um, The government in 2017 initiated a uh, hemodialysis program for people to have in their homes. But for 60-plus percent of Portugal Cove St. Phillips people, uh, for all of Belle Island people, and for 25% of the Paradise section of our district, um, we're on well water, and pathogens in well water uh, can have a negative effect on people doing a dialysis treatment, given the fact that anywhere from 300 liters to 600 liters of uh, clean water is required for a weekly uh, weekly treatment for dialysis patients. 
So in 2015, we in, engaged in conversations uh, as executive assistant to Minister Brazel with Mrs. Walters over at the hospital to try to get a couple of chairs there. We were uh, dialysis chairs. We were... Um, we were deep in talks, uh, getting into the platform and, and the finances of it, and then there was an election called, and it's been stagnant ever since. So I just want the people to know that we're still on it. The cost, the cost for people of Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, Paradise, and Bell Island is about three, uh, thirty thousand to a hundred thousand dollars per patient per treatment to go to St. John's to have it done. And we all know that there's a there's a saturation point um, where the you know the the availability of chairs is, is getting slimmer and slimmer. So with the 25 to 30 people in our district that are on dialysis, a centrally located couple of chairs um, would really a take the pressure off the St. John's chairs for everybody else on the Northeast Avalon and just outside the city of St. John's, uh, but also make life a little bit easier uh, for the people in our district. Right now, about 22% of the people that are on dialysis um, are below the poverty line. Um, the number in St. John's is closer to 47% are below the poverty line. So we need to address this. Uh, and whether it takes a few dollars to get it done, it's it's a life safety issue. Uh, so I just wanted to let people know uh, the explanation of, of my discussions about this and uh, open up the floor to anybody at government to be proactive instead of reactionary on, on this kind of stuff. Um, also, <clears throat> excuse me, I heard you talk to someone about the the affordable and accessible home problems that we have, and everybody references Newfoundland Labrador housing. I like a model that's used in a neighboring town of Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, Pooch Cove. They have a 10% affordable slash accessible requirement for all new bills and subdivisions. That takes all the onus off the government and actually puts it on the builder. So well, a bit of that's actually part of the most recent housing announcement here in this province is yep. uh, X percentage has to be built and uh, operated by the developer, but has to use uh, NLHC rental caps. So that has been addressed, and uh, rightfully so, because mm -hmm. if we're just talking about market build, hitting an affordability uh, tag or crosshair or bullseye is almost impossible. It really, You're truly right. is. Just what the cost per square foot to build a new home, materials, labor, and all the rest included. So that had to be part of this new program inside the five-point housing plan and the monies associated with it. So thankfully, that's being attended. And affordable housing is a bit of a catch-all phrase that I think people have some confusion about how we use it because it's not just one thing. It's a variety of things because you could be talking about seniors' affordable housing, folks with disabilities' affordable housing, wraparound services required for mental health and addictions' affordable housing. So it's a lot of different things. Yeah, it's a, it's a again, it's a, uh, a challenge to be proactive and to look at all of those things before you actually start to go with bricks and mortar. I agree. Um, another thing. Very that quickly, because I, I have to move on, Daryl. Yeah, another thing that I wanted to touch on was um, in this election, in this by-election, which is probably a dress rehearsal for what's coming up in the fall or early spring next year, people should, I'm hoping that people will look at the actions of the candidates previous to this and not just count on the buzzwords and the word salad they're hearing now. I know that uh, I've been outspent, I've been outsigned, I got 
don't have near the workers as the major candidates, but I won't be outworked for the people in this district. I've made sure during storms that there was a warm place to sleep and there was hot food and beverage for people who had to sleep in their cars in a winter storm. So I've been here before. I'm here now. And no matter what the outcome of the election is, I'll be here in the future for the people of this district. Appreciate thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Good luck. Have a great day. You do. Bye-bye, Starl Harding. The independent candidate, the fourth name on the ballot, and the by-election, of course, is Monday. Advanced polling is currently ongoing. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Tracy. You're on the air. Oh, uh, good morning, Patty. How are you today? Doing grand. How about you? Best kind. So, uh, Patty, I'm an allied health professional, and uh, I've been working now for 32 years. So uh, I'm retiring next year um, after a long career, and I'm very happy about that. When I first started work, I worked on the West Coast of Newfoundland, and at that point in time, I was with Nate. So the first uh, 17 years of my career from... Uh, 91 to 2008, I was with Nate. And during that time, my salary went up $40,000. I started, it was either 27 or 29000 and when I left uh, 2008, it was 69000 When I came to St. John's, um, I came to work uh, within the hospitals, and that was Allied Health. My salary in the last 17 years has gone up just ten thousand dollars. So I don't, I you know, I don't know if minimum wage probably went up more than we did in the last 17 years. And for me, it's I don't understand uh, why we had this job evaluation system when they when the government can't even agree to. Uh, pay staff or employees what they decided in their own grid. And for Miss Cody to come out and basically say, well, we're going to poach or get other people to fill in your positions. Like a lot of our positions now um, for OT and physio and those type of positions, you have to go out to province to study to do that. Who's going to come back here if if our government can't even figure out to pay us what we should be paid. And even those who are left here to do our training here, like social work, with the cost of fees gone up in MUN, the cost of going to school is so much more. So I don't understand how they can say with this JES that they can't pay us on the points that we're supposed to be paid. Like in the last 16 years, my salary's gone up $10,000, and that might sound a lot to some people who are low-wage earners, but for somebody who's a professional and has professional fees and insurances and all these things attached to it and responsibilities, that's not a lot of money. When, when my first half of my career, my salary went up forty grand. No, it, it's not a lot of money, but let's just, you know, just try to break down some acronyms for folks as well. JES is the job evaluation system. Yep. And as a result of that not being where it should be, yep. consequently, people doing similar work are getting paid sometimes a disparity some $20,000 less for very, very similar work. So yep. until they fix the job evaluation system or pledge to have it fixed by a certain date and then deal with things like benefits and salary and whatever increase you're going to get annually percentage-wise, but that's got to be done because that's the, the sole or actually it's the key reason why you see the gap in pay. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I just wanted to put that out there. Like very early in my career, like we we you know you we went on strike three times. One was beneficial. One wasn't beneficial. One wasn't illegal. But I just wanted to throw out the numbers because like how can somebody's salary go up, you know, forty thousand dollars in in their in their first half of their career, and and you know just ten percent like you know, in, in the last 16, we just want to be paid what we're supposed to be paid based on the JES. And, and it's frustrating to, I guess, so much time and energy is, is gone towards fighting not to pay us what we're supposed to be paid. It's really frustrating. I can understand that. I appreciate the time this morning, Tracy. Hopefully this gets resolved sooner than later. All right, thanks. Have a good one. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, it is time for the news. And, of course, I'm hitting it right on target, right on time. When we come back, it's a snow crab in northern cod. Look away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Ryan Cleary, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. You and your listeners. Thanks for taking the call, sir. No problem at all. Patty, I heard uh, Tony Wakeham on uh, before the news at the top of the hour, and I'd also like to start by offering my condolences to the family and friends of, uh, of Derek Bragg. I dealt with Derek when he was Minister of Fisheries. Politics aside, what everyone says is true, Patty. He was a, a salt-of-the-earth man. He was a lovely person. So again, deepest condolences to his family and friends and to the people of Greenspond for the loss of their native son. Here, here. I echo those sentiments. Patty, I was on open line a couple weeks ago uh, when Linda was filling in. You were off, and at that time, like I say, a couple weeks ago, it was about two and a half months until the start of the 2024 fishing season, snow crab I'm talking about specifically. I complained at the time uh, that we didn't know um, whether or not the province was going to issue new snow crab processing licenses. I also complained uh, we didn't know whether or not they were going to lift the cap on existing independent processing companies like St. Mary's Bay Fisheries. So, Patty, now it's two months before the start of the snow crab season, and we still don't know whether there will be a new whether or not there are going to be new processing players this year. So, at the same time that we're working to get a co-op off the ground, we don't know who the players are, whether or not there will be new uh, independent processors. So once again, I want to raise the question, what's the, the delay? Elvis, Elvis Lovelace, he's the minister. He was uh, also the minister of, of a couple of years ago when Royal Greenland was lit in, and they purchased Quincy. Um, now, at the time, he practically uh, didn't give it a second, second thought. Royal Greenland's uh, application to take over uh, Quincy was, uh, was basically approved without a second thought. Um, I, I know that the minister has to do his due diligence. He has to do his due diligence, but this is getting ridiculous. The, the bottom line is we need competition. The question is, what's the delay? Two months away from the snow crab season, and again, Patty, for a new co-op trying to get off the ground, we don't know who the players will be in terms of processing for the 2024 season. The fishery, whether we talk about DFO or province, provincial responsibility, every single thing is the 11th hour. It just always is, and it just doesn't help the efficiency or the ease with which the fishery is executed. Royal Greenland, the Fish Processing Licensing Board recommended the deal, but they also added a very clear caveat that we have to start focusing in on foreign ownership. 
uh, in this province, whether it be uh, on the processing side in particular. But that was one of the caveats they put forward. Seemingly not adhered to or no, maybe more, no more than a shrug of shoulders by the province, which is not good enough. Regarding St. Mary's and the cap on snow crab that they get to process, you know, obviously it doesn't make a whole lot of sense what's going on because they, were mani- they managed to pick up a few more, a couple more million pounds, I can't remember exactly what it was, to process in their plant. So if the other plants were unable to keep up with the crab coming in the door, and have to utilize St. Mary's to process the crab on their behalf. Obviously, that cap system is just sort of arbitrary and doesn't make much sense because they process more than they were told they could. I tell you what, Patty, I'd love to hear Elvis Levels on the radio explaining this, you putting these questions to him, because, I mean, there's been radio silence on this for weeks and weeks, and it's just not good enough. I mean, your, la- your point about things coming down to the last minute, that happens with everything. So th- that brings me into Northern Cod. So... So we got the northern cod fishery. It's been under moratorium for for 32 years. The assessment model was changed uh, last year so that uh, the northern cod stock is lifted out of the critical zone. It's into the cautious zone. The FAW put out a statement this week saying that the first 115,000 tons of quota uh, must be reserved for the inshore fleet and indigenous groups. So there are two questions from that. Again, coming back to your point about the last minute. The two questions from that are, what percentage of Northern Cod will the will indigenous groups get? We still don't know that, Patty. Now, as late as 2019, that they, they were asking for 25%. So what percentage will indigenous get? I think all the players need to know uh, what's going to be on the table for 2024. The second question, Patty, is in terms of the indigenous and whatever percentage they get of that uh, Northern Cod quota, The second question is, will offshore factory freezer trawlers be allowed to catch that cod for the indigenous? Because that would be the offshore doing through the back door what the offshore couldn't do through the front door. We still don't know the answers to those questions. What percentage will the indigenous get? And will the offshore uh, offshore factory freezer trawlers be allowed to catch that, which I don't agree with. Uh, I think most people in this province who, who are familiar with what happened in 1992, no one will agree with that. But uh, we, we don't have any answers. Nope. And nor do we know what's going to happen just with the overall concept of setting the price for snow crab. You know, what percentage of the market value will be afforded to either side. We don't know whether or not the federal government's going to move on the request by the South and West Coast shrimp harvesters because operating costs are up, catch rates are down. They want to get out of that. License bought out. They want to get in the redfish game. We're told that might happen, but we probably won't know until it's time to gear up. And there's never a good reason why. And then for the rest of us who are not directly involved in the commercial fishery, you know, even something as fundamental as when is the uh, recreational food fishery going to take place? We find out late in the game, and it's usually almost exactly the same dates, the same 39 days, but they just wait and wait and wait forever to tell us, which I just don't understand. The, the last point I want to make, Patty, and they're all great points. The last point I want to make is about a con- controlling agreements. Now, for the information of your listeners, just before Christmas, the House of Commons released a study into foreign ownership and corporate concentration in the fishing industry. One of the recommendations of the report was for, and this was a key recommendation, Patty, it was for the creation of an independent fishery financing agency within five years, more or less a fisheries loan board. So that comments report said that a new financing agency would financing would finance new entrants to purchase licenses, licenses and quota to get into the fishery. 
But but that new financing agency would also uh, refinance existing license holders to become independent of and, and I'll quote from the report: independent of illegal trust and supply agreements with fish processors. So processors right now they fund fishing enterprises that gives them control over inshore boats, and and that's where the term cartel comes from. Their their control is complete. The conservatives on the committee, and Clifford Small specifically, he went a step further and said DFO was, must work immediately, not within five years, but immediately with the provinces to create this new financing agency from British Columbia to Newfoundland and Labrador. So from my perspective, Clifford Small is dead on the money. Part of the control, that, that the, a big part of the control that the cartel has over the inshore is these, fi- these financing agreements. And, Patty, the bottom line is that control must be broken now, not in five years. It, it's part of what gives the, the power to the cartel. The cartel are the, the bigger companies that actually run the inshore fisheries. It was settled in court. I mean, controlling agreements. There was even a fellow from Labrador who was part of that uh, lawsuit that was adjudicated in the province of Nova Scotia. The the law has already spoken on this one. So I don't know if there's some sort of loophole with a financing arrangement as opposed to out-and-out ownership. I suppose that's it. But you would think that we can close that loophole very, very easily with an amendment to the Act. Uh, I appreciate the time, Ryan. Thanks for this. Thank you, Patty. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number one. Ray, you're on the air. Uh, yes, uh, hello, Patty. Hello. And a pleasant good day to you. The very same to you, sir. You know, us ratepayers of Newfoundland Hydro came into a situation that we certainly did not ask for. Uh, the Lower Churchill Falls was a buckle right from the start. They had a project for $6 billion that somehow went to, somebody said 14 billion, but I think it's more like 20 billion. Uh, here, they're asking ratepayers to pay this enormous bill. And when you go and uh, make a, a program like that, certainly selling off the hydro would be a way to pay this enormous bill back. How many ratepayers do we have in Newfoundland? We have half a million people. Average, I suppose, is three people per household, or maybe more. So a couple of hundred thousand people to pay back this exorbitant amount of money. Here we are in a land where gasoline prices are gone through the roof, grocery prices are gone through the roof, the little bit that people need to live on has been robbed by the uh, uh, people who run Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro. How many feather beds are lined with money from the Lower Church of Falls project? Why this should be allowed in this country, in this province? And the robbing of Labrador resources and the little that the Labrador people get from all the riches that came out of Labrador is a crime untold. 
Well, even if we're simply talking about hydro, it's their environment, their river, their environmental implications, and they don't even get the power generated from it. It's really quite something when you stand back and think about it. You know, I mean, here, why is it even called Newfoundland Labrador when you got two separate entities? Like, you have people from the great northern Labrador who came over here to this province, which is part of Labrador, uh, and uh, cannot partake in uh, a caribou hunt. They drove caribou from the Labrador over here to Newfoundland. Uh, you got a, a country next door to Labrador, Quebec, and you cannot even bring a contract into Quebec from Labrador. When they have anything to go into Quebec, they got to drop it off at the border, and Quebec people pick it up and put it in their trucks and take it away. Like, we are surrounded by uh, a bunch of whatnots, steal whatever they can from the great country of Labrador, and we have, uh, I bet you the people on Labrador are paying for that hydro through their nose and not even getting the benefits of it. It's a... Why? Okay, sorry. Why in heaven's name is this allowed? I'd say to every Labradorian and every Newfoundlander that got a hydro bill, tell the politicians, listen, as long as you're running for office and you get in, we will vote you out unless you change this policy. Ray, there was a lot to that five minutes. I really appreciate making time. Would you like to offer a final thought before we take a break? Well, uh, not really because what is going to change? The only thing that's going to change if people stand up and say, no, we are not voting for you, you're not on our side. If you get on our side, we'll vote for you. Stop stealing our funds so as you people can live high on the hog. And let's put some sensible normally into this because you've got a bunch of people living here in this retirement haven and you're robbing every single chance that they have to get a bite to eat. I thank you very much for your time. I appreciate yours, Ray. Have a nice weekend. Thank you. You're welcome. God Bye-bye. Bless. Final, uh, final break of the day and the week. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go say good morning to the current member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks at Conception Bay, East Bell Island, on his last day as an MHA, is David Brazel. David, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and uh, thank you for this opportunity to get on and thank the people of uh, uh, my district for the last 14 years' support and uh, talk a little bit about some of the current issues that still exist within the district and some of the debate that uh, some of the candidates have had around what has or hasn't been done uh, over the last uh, 14 years, particularly during my tenure. Sure. Where would you like to start? 
Well, I want to start. I, I first got to clarify something. Uh, one of the candidates, and I don't mind saying it's the Liberal candidate, Fred Hutton, had made a comment in, uh, in one of the debates that um, the road work had been neglected on Bell Island for the last uh, decade or so. Uh, and he's right around, you know, the last nine years of the Liberal reign it has been. But I want to clarify, and I've posted on my Facebook every year. I put forward a list of roads that were priorities in my district from Paradise to Portugal, Cove, St. Phillips to Belle Island. I even specifically didn't put a general amount looking for it. Uh, I, you know, I was so detailed, I would say two tents here, one tent, some resurfacing, some pothole maintenance, a culvert, specifically. And I even outlined to mo- a multitude of ministers that as a former minister, uh, I understood the priorities around safety. I understood the priorities around, uh, you know, uh, re, re- patriating a road that's just going to have a traffic flow to it as part of this process and particularly around safety for busing uh, and busing being able to pick up children on roads that were safe and I outlined that every year consistently even up until December 1st of this year I sent the last one to John Abbott outlining uh, the roads and I, and I had to be you know inadvertently sarcastic by saying because nothing has been done the last eight years john i ask that not only is the list still existing that i had sent to previous ministers but also right now here are some of the new uh, roads that have been added to it that have uh, you know become deplorable for driving on and still hasn't got uh, a response there i always get oh yeah we're going to look at it we're going to do it i get there's a five-year roads plan i understand the rationale uh, why they want to put it out there but we can never get a clarification what's that based on and then when fred and gets up and says, well, you should vote for me because I have the ear of the premier. I can make a phone call and make that happen. That's not how, uh, the, you know, the road work maintenance program is supposed to work. It's not about favoritism. It's about priorities. It's about safety. And it's about if you're going to play a five-year game plan, you better have allocated certain amounts of money for emergency interventions on road plans. Just one of the big issues I wanted to clarify, uh, Patty, about why, you know, we had talked about and Tina Neary had talked about specifically looking at the priorities within the district and lobbying to have them done, particularly around safety and traveling of buses to and from schools. Well, I mean, in a perfect world, road work decisions and the creation of the five-year plan would be done by a civil engineer who doesn't have any political affiliations. In a perfect world, of course, and that's not, there is no utopia in politics. It was a ridiculous thing for Fred to have said to be honest with you I've known Fred a long time but that is something that is exactly what we're not supposed to be doing the politicians should never think that because you have the ear of government your road gets done first and we do know there will inevitably be human nature and the ability for this the sitting government to make these types of decisions but road work and bridge work is about safety not about politics it shouldn't be and I'm not trying to be Pollyanna here and I'm not too so gullible to think that that's you know not going to happen does, but it should be engineers make these decisions. No one's sitting in the House of Assembly. 100% agree, and uh, you can ask any member on the Liberal side who were in government when I was the minister. Uh, I treated everyone fairly based on what my staff had came back, and you're right, the uh, technical civil engineers would do the road maintenance assessments and would prioritize what had to be done. If there was some flexibility, uh, then you may have done a road that wasn't exactly uh, a deteriorating problem in the park, but had a beneficial uh, uh, use for the community. It could be it was going accessing to a park or something 
for tourism and these type of things. But your main priority was around safety and taking the recommendations of the uh, bureaucrats as part of that. So if you look during my reign, I will guarantee you, it was spread out across this province uh, fairly equally, but more based on the need when it came to safety for individuals. So, and that's all we ask any administration, any taxpayer would do it. Uh, you know, come come Tuesday, I'll be uh, you know average citizen again. I'll have the same concerns no matter what administration's in there. Uh, but I will uh, be reiterating, and I know uh, you know Tony Wakem has said it, and Tina has said it. This will be about prioritizing what's in the best interest of the people, uh, not what's in the favoritism of taking care of some of your own. It's about what's right and equitable and the best the return on the investment for people there. So you know that's that's one of the issues. The other one in my district here is about uh, health care, and I know it's it's a you know chronic uh, major issue everywhere in this province right now. But we're on an isolated community uh, with an uh, elderly population. There's major challenges here. Uh, do our nurse practitioner and our nurses and our personal care attendants do a wonderful job at the hospital? Sure. But we still need a physician. There still needs to be a recruitment process that includes uh, uh, extra incentives to get somebody to come to Belle Island. Because when our emergencies room is down, your ferry's not operating, uh, then you've got a bigger challenge here. You're looking for SARS to come in from Gander to pick somebody up on a stormy night. You've got a major challenge just to stabilize somebody. So there's a number of major issues here that have to be addressed uh, equitably. And it can't be just saying, oh, I can take care of that because I work for the premier and me making a call is going to fix it. We are, we're not that gullible. We all know it doesn't work that way. And it, it's, it's out of kilter for a politician to make those promises in this day and age now. It should be honesty, transparency, and openness. I wish we had more time, Dave. I'm going to squeeze one more round before I run out of time. Thanks for this. I appreciate it. I just want to, you know, my heart is broken uh, for my friend Derek Bragg uh, on his passing and his funeral today. Heart out to his family and friends. Take care, David. Take care, Patty. Right. Thank you. Bye-bye. I uh, wish we had more time for that. Line 6, John, you're on the air. Yes, Patty, Patty, Patty. My son, what a day. Not had to tell it's Friday in the summer's house. I'm here, sit- I'm here sitting on the side of the Trans-Canada Highway in the construction zone, and you'll swear to God we're on the 401 with the traffic that's blown, blown past us there today. It's always the way, isn't it? I got to hit the highway this afternoon. Um, fingers crossed, I have a nice, easy spin out the highway, not try, trying to interact with some of these race car drivers or people who think they are anyway. My son, I tell you, is unreal. You think you're, you, that's where you think you're at a NASCAR race or something out here today. We're out just out past the Long Harbor Hill cleaning up that oil, that fuel spill. And my son, he go, man, we got flaggers up there. They got to step out on the road with their stops. I've never seen four vehicles now blow the stop sign. They're going that fast that they can't stop through the construction zone. I'm frightened that someone's going to run into a dump truck because there's a lot of heavy dump trucks up there with full loads on. And if you hit them, you're going to feel it. Listen, I appreciate the time. Just because we nudged right up against 12 o'clock, you've had the last word, but people just relax when you're out on the highway. The byway are simply driving on a residential street. Uh, thanks for making time, John. No problem, Patty. Thank you. You too. Uh, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, good show today. Big thanks for everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.